Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for Free the Black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck me promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me, you can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free, okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police, Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, finna build here, up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, cause that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we are not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
newspaper's founder's role in transatlantic slavery and announced a decade-long program of restorative justice. The Scott Trust said it would invest more than 10 million pounds sterling to descendant communities of the enslaved. Opposition British MPs tied to the centre-left British Labour Party also added their voice to the debate in the first quarter of 2023. For the first time, King Charles III, in a statement released by Buckingham Palace, signalled institutional support for research into the British monarchy's ties to slavery after a document showed a royal ancestor with shares in a slave trading company. Charles III, who is the head of state of a number of formerly enslaved British Commonwealth countries, released the statement after responding to an article in the Guardian newspaper that revealed a document showing that the deputy governor of the slave trading Royal African Company transferred £1,000 of shares in the business to King William III in 1689. In this recent memoir, Spare, Prince Harry, who has fallen out of grace with his family, wrote that the monarchy rests upon wealth generated by, quote, exploited workers and thuggery, annexation and enslaved people, unquote. In this bonus episode of The Bub Report, we discuss the current state of the reparations debate as formerly enslaved and colonized Caribbean countries make the case for reparative justice. We welcome our guests, Laura Trevelyan, former BBC journalist and member of the Trevelyan family, Lincoln Toro Depardine, author and member of the Grenada National Reparations Community, the Honorable Clive Lewis, member of parliament for the Norwich South constituency in the British House of Commons, and John Dower, member of the Trevelyan family and award-winning director working in film, TV, and games. Here now is our host, Dr. Kellon Bubb. We thank you for joining us. Hello, viewers and listeners, and we welcome you to this bonus edition of the Bubb Report. You might be wondering why the program is on at this hour, but uh, we have a special program uh, in which we'll be discussing reparations. Now, uh, earlier in the wake of the Trevelyan family historic apology for enslaving people of African descent on the island of Grenada in March of this year, we will discuss how the reparations movement will navigate the, its demands for various forms of reparatory justice for the formerly enslaved and colonized people of the Caribbean region. At this point, we, will, we wish to welcome our panelists for this particular special edition of the Bub Report. He is Mr. Lincoln Toro Depardine. He's an author. He's also a member of the Grenada National Reparations Committee, as well as a veteran journalist uh, who we can rely on for uh, streams of knowledge with respect to journalistic history in Grenada. Mr. Depardine, welcome to the program. We welcome. also have... Uh, uh, Yes, go ahead. Thank you, thank you, uh, Dr. Bob. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. And we have Laura Trevelyan. Uh, she works with the British Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, she's also a journalist like myself. And uh, she recently retired from the corporation, she says, and she will be dedicating uh, some of her time to uh, the cause for reparative justice. And we also have a cousin of uh, Laura Trevelyan, Mr. 
John Dower, who is, as we said uh, in the intro, uh, he's a member of the Trevelyan family, but uh, he uh, does a lot of work in, in relation to screen and film. So, uh, panelists, welcome to this uh, special episode of The Bub Report. Great Thank you for here. the opportunity, Kellon. Thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, uh, Laura, I, I will begin with you, Laura and John. Um, since your families, you and your family's visit to Grenada, you have submitted an early retirement as, as a journalist <laughs> with the British Broadcasting Corporation, you said, to uh, dedicate your, uh, your, your services to the cause of re reparations. Now, what motivated this move? Some might have questioned your intentions in that respect. Laura. Yes, Callum, what I said was that I was joining the Caribbean's fight for reparatory justice. Uh, because in the wake of our family's apology in Grenada, so there was so much reaction around the world that was flooding in. And so many families that contacted me, so many individuals, just so many people who had questions and felt that what he, we had done was encouraging, that guided really by Sir Hilary Beckles, the chair of CARICOM's reparations, Commission, who encouraged me to think of myself as somebody who could communicate on behalf of the Caribbean and its demand for reparatory justice. Um, I hoped that I could try to make a difference, and that's what I've been trying to do. Okay, um, and of course, I, I, I'm going to bring in John here as well. Uh, John, welcome to the program. Now, uh, both of you were recently in Grenada. Um, can you talk about, uh, and Laura mentioned that reaction that you received um, from the United Kingdom. Can you talk about, John, yourself, that reaction from the UK, from the public, from, 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 from the British public in respect of um, what you did in Grenada? Now, obviously, public reaction in the UK, as we understand it, is extremely polarizing. There are those in the United Kingdom who say, that they bear no responsibility for what their ancestors did. So why, therefore, are we having this conversation on reparations? John? Certainly, Kellon, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, I always said to the family while we were putting this um, apology together, which took a long time to negotiate, and we had many Zoom meetings over the year before we um, finally went and made the apology public, um, I, I talked a lot about the fact that the organizing the letter was going to be difficult and, uh, and complex, but actually once it went out into the world, we were very clear that, the, um, that what was going to happen then was unpredictable. And certainly I think that's proved true because I think since that time, um, the response has been very varied. Um, on the whole, I think we've been overwhelmed by the fact that it seems to have been received quite positively. And we've also been very, um, very positive about the fact that it also seems to have made quite a difference. It seems to have engendered a conversation, which I think um, was certainly there, but we, the, let, the, the apology seems to have um, opened things up a bit. So there's been a lot of uh, press coverage, there's been a lot of uh, action on social media. Um, the family has become very galvanized. I think we've also encouraged other families to start thinking about doing the same. So I would say that although there has been the um we knew there was going to be some criticism and there's certainly been some criticism i think overall we've been encouraged by the positive feedback that we've got and reception that the the apologies mm -hmm. uh has received 
And uh, you, you, you mentioned, I'm, go, I'm going to bring uh, uh, Laura back here. You mentioned that uh, you receive feedback from other uh, British families, um, and, and you've had conversations with these people. Uh, were these people connected in any way to uh, colonialism and slavery in the Caribbean? Were, were yes. they benef direct beneficiaries of, yes. um, Absolutely, of the Callum. slave trade? Yes. Yes. One, yeah, one of the one of the points that Sir Hilary Beckles made to us was that there's been a deafening silence in general from those whose ancestors directly profited from enslavement, from those whose ancestors owned or part owned plantations, uh, and that was why he encouraged us to set an example, to set what he called a historic example, because he felt that there would be other families out there who would, if we did this would feel that they too could do the same. And what Sir Hillary said to us, and you will know Kellen and Lincoln much better than us, Sir Hillary told us that the Caribbean's history is a, it's a void for so many people, that you don't know where your ancestors are from specifically, uh, that slavery is this gaping wound, and that if we came forward, we would in some way be filling in that jigsaw puzzle uh, and bringing some actual facts to, to what is a void. So in the wake of our family apology, I have been contacted by families whose ancestors owned slaves in Jamaica, in Barbados, in the British Caribbean. Families looking for a roadmap. Families asking, how did you do this? Families saying, this is such a difficult and painful subject. We feel so terrible about what our ancestors did, but we just don't even know where to begin. So I've advised them, contact the reparations committee on the relevant island you know, try to find as many papers as you can. Have you consulted the UCL database of legacies of British slavery? Uh, you know, try try to find out what you can. Uh, contact the reparations committee, whether it's in Jamaica or Barbados, and and say that you would like to try to move this conversation forward. Okay. And uh, Tora, let, let me bring you in here as uh, the uh, as a member of of, of the Grenada. National Reparations Committee, and thank you again for being so flexible in coming on. Now, um, we, we've been talking about, uh, you know, these uh, different uh, commitments to apology in, in, the, in the context of the Guardian newspaper, for example. They're talking about what, what they intend to do. How does the committee respond to declarations, for example, made by the British royal family? And the Guardian newspaper, as I said earlier, in respect of its intention to study reparations, in the case of the former, and in the case of the, the latter, uh, through the Scotch Trust, a commitment to investing more than £10 million to descendant communities linked to its founders. Now, Toro, some may say that these organizations are simply engaging in mere tokenism, and they're not necessarily genuine about attempting to addressing the specific 10-point reparations plan as articulated by CARICOM. Your thoughts on that idea? How, how is the reparations uh, committee um, ensuring, or, or I, I suppose, testing the, the, the genuine intentions of, of, of those who are coming uh, forward? How do you measure those intentions, in other words? Right. And that's a real genuine concern that the this discussion must move beyond talk. So, for instance, the chairman of the Grenada National Reparations Committee, he has welcomed the, the uh, King Charles saying that he... he, he he likes the idea of the University of Manchester doing the study. But he has, he has gone on record in an interview with the BBC saying that King Charles must move beyond just an apology. Um, we must move to the point where some 
some tangible reparation is done. And that has been the, 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 the position of the Grenada National Reparations Committee and the larger umbrella organization, the CARICOM Commission on Reparations. So we, we understand the nature of, of stalling and talking, but we will not give up. We'll, we'll, be, um, we'll persevere in, in terms of fulfilling the 10-point agenda of CARICOM. A lot of people may not know, but um, the CARICOM Commission has a 10-point plan. And what they're asking for, beginning with a formal apology for slavery. But it doesn't end there. There are nine other points which include um, investment in health and education and cultural institutions. So, so we understand, we will start with the apology, but we, we also need to, to push to ensure that tangible um, uh, reparative justice is, 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 is implemented. The other thing I would say also is that um, this idea of reparation is not new. It has happened to other groups that have been, um, the injustice has, has been done to them. So it's not new. And the second point is that um, allyship. Um, while the Grenada National Reparations Committee and the CARICOM Reparations Committee Commission are in the forefront of this struggle, there is no struggle that I can call to mind that hasn't had allies. So we have allies, let's say, in the Trevelyan family. But we will lead the struggle. There's no struggle, whether it's the apartheid in South Africa, whether it's the civil rights movement in the United States. Allyship is important. So we will welcome any ally. Wherever they can help us, we will welcome the allyship. And that is our position of the Grenada National Reparations Committee. Uh, you say allyship, but there, there is also an obligation as well, right? But, and this goes, I wish MP... Uh, Clive Lewis was here because I was hoping to, to frame this question. Uh, John, if, if, <laughs> uh, for f future conversation, please let Mr. Lewis know that he <laughs> owes us an appearance on the Bob Report in short order. <laughs> Will do. But Will I, do. I, 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 I'm going to, uh, really expand this conversation here, Tori, and I, I want to bring in Laura and, and John on, on, on this question. And, and this was a question that I had, um, for, um, for the, uh, for the Member of Parliament there. Now, back in 2014, a spokesman for uh, William Hague, who at the time served as Britain's foreign secretary under Prime Minister David Cameron, who actually visited Jamaica, when he visited Jamaica and the question of reparations came up, he said, yeah, well, we're going to build a prison for your deportees. <laughs> so there was that back then. Um, but uh, the, the spokesperson for the foreign secretary said, quote, no legal claim has been made against the United Kingdom government in relation to reparations for slavery. We do not see reparations as the answer. Instead, we should concentrate on identifying ways forward with a focus on the shared global challenges that face our countries in the 21st century. He goes on to say, quote, we regret and condemn the inequities of the historic slave trade, but these shameful activities uh, belong in the past. Governments today cannot take responsibility for what happened over 200 years ago. Now, and, and, this is all, and, and this was back then, but this is happening now against the backdrop of what we're seeing in the UK. There are fissures in, in British society around the Brexit question. Uh, there are several economic anxiety issues that's confronting the United Kingdom. And uh, perhaps I'll begin with John and Laura. What appetite is there uh, in, in, in the British public, public, do you think, for, 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 for there to be a conversation on reparations, at least at an institutional 
and at the governmental level with, with, with this backdrop. Well, Kellon, I think I would say that things are changing, aren't they? I mean, I live in the United States, so I'll let John talk about Britain, but the Dutch yeah. Prime Minister in December apologised for slavery, which is something that no former colonial power has done. And although there's been criticism of the reparation funds that the Dutch set up, nonetheless, there is now a precedent within Europe. And as you will know, currently there's a major effort underway by the repair campaign led by Dennis O'Brien um, of Digicel to work with CARICOM and the University of the West, in West Indies to turn the reparations plans for each member of CARICOM into concrete asks, whether it's investment in health, education, debt forgiveness, with the idea of later this fall beginning a full-scale lobbying campaign of European capitals, EU capitals, and also uh, of Britain. And, uh, you know, there is just so much momentum now in the wake of the King supporting research uh, into the royal family's links with slavery in the wake of the Dutch apology that change comes slowly, but the process and the conversation is beginning now uh, almost 190 years after slavery was abolished it's taken that long to get to this point but things do now all of a sudden seem to be moving quickly as the whole atmosphere and mood has changed after black in Europe certainly and here in the US after Black Lives Matter and the death of George Floyd so many hard questions have been asked and finally people are trying to answer them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, John, uh, you you are in the UK. I, I, I follow some of the media over there. I, I listen to LBC. I'm a uh, uh, <laughs> intensive listener of of LBC and Mr. O'Brien. If you know Mr. O'Brien, <laughs> let him know I'm a fan. But, <laughs> but the, the mood in the UK, in in, in given the, the the volatile politics that's that's occurring uh, in the UK, is is there a, a, a public sentiment for reparations to be added to this debate? Well, finances are hard at the moment, so it's a tricky moment. But as we know, this is there's never a good time to start talking about reparations. But something that the um, the British public, I think, are rather ignorant about is that we only just finished paying off a whole series of what you might call reparations in the form of compensation to the slave owners. Now, in 1834, when our family received its so-called compensation uh, at the end of ending of uh, slavery, the um, amount of money that had to be borrowed by the government was 40% of the UK's GDP that year, 20 million pounds. It was borrowed from bankers such as the Rothschilds. And that money was only paid off finally in 2015, which means effectively we were paying as taxpayers in this country reparations to the slave owners um, all that time. So. I think once you start putting it into context like that and informing people of the reality of, uh, of what reparations might look like, you start to realize, actually, we have been contributing already this. I mean, in the case I'm talking about to families such as our, for the money paid to families such as ours eight generations ago, or whatever it was. And so mm -hmm. I, I think that it's really about information. I think we need to be getting that message out. And I think that's really what our family is trying to do. Mm hmm. And uh, Toro, let me, let me bring you in here on, on the same question. The, the approach, uh, uh, and, and, and based on what uh, this uh, foreign, the spokesperson of the former foreign secretary is saying here, uh, and of course the, the context to that statement as well, is the idea that uh, the British government was not formally approached legally by the CARICOM Reparations Committee. That, for example, the CARICOM Reparations Commission 
did not institute legal action, formal legal action, against uh, Great Britain for uh, these um, atrocities committed against uh, the enslaved in, in the Caribbean. So do you think the approach in respect of how uh, reparations uh, is being advanced by your organizations uh, is, 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 is the most effective one? In, in other words, you, you are appealing for moral suasion. Why not uh, test the, the theory of reparative justice in, in, in the court system? Right, and, and there's, there's nothing saying right now that we wouldn't get to that step of legal action. Um, but you, you have to approach the struggle in different ways. You cannot fight your struggle in just one manner. Let's say, for example, going out in the street and protest. So there's nothing saying that there won't be a formal um, court proceedings. But we have, to, we have to be realistic in where we are, where we are starting from, right? So we, need to, we, can, do, we can do many things at the same time. So we're starting where we are. We have made tremendous steps, I would say to getting apologies made, to getting other people involved in the struggle. But we are not ruling out the, 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 the getting to the stage of, of, of appealing directly to the, the British government or the French government or taking legal action. Those are steps. We, we cannot do everything at the same time. It's a slow process, as Laura has said earlier. But there's nothing saying that we wouldn't do, get to that stage of legal action. But, and then you've you got to remember that that's an extensive step you're taking. Once you get to the court, it's long, it's extensive, and it takes resources, which is something none of the, 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 the local reparations committee, including Grenada, can claim, claim to have right now. Okay, um, and I'm going to bring back John because I, I want to respect your time, John. I know that you have to leave soon, but you, you are recently in Grenada. Uh, talk to me about, and, and, and we, we observed the, the media coverage uh, in, in respect of how that went. Obviously, uh, it, it was a polarizing uh, visit for you, uh, especially given the local reaction. But talk to me about your own experience going to Grenada, uh, going to the place where your ancestors uh, amassed significant wealth off, 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 off the backs of our ancestors. Um, what was that like, and, and, and what were some of the biggest takeaways that you took away from you from Grenada? It's a big question, Kellon. I mean, if, yes. if, I'm to, if I'm to try and answer that question as simply as possible, it was amazing and awful in, in the same measures, I think, I would say my visit. I was, I was really, really bowled over by the welcome from people. I loved the place. I, you know, it, it was wonderful to be there. Uh, we were generally welcomed very, very favorably. The um, reception at the um, forum was very, very powerful, very, very emotional. I think, I think the, there were two moments that were really stood out to me. We had a Danish film crew following um, the family and the story. Mm -hmm. And we went to one of the estates that the, that the family, um, that family part owned. And I was standing on this, on this hill going up to where the house used to be and um i think the reality of it was overpowering because i was in this beautiful place but i knew that terrible things had happened and um it's hard to express how um upsetting and um awful that felt and then and then the second one was they filmed me walking down rows of sugarcane now again Sugarcane was the was the way that my family made its money. 
and it exploited um, the enslaved. And walking on, on that sugarcane and, and touching the sugarcane w was very, very powerful because, again, I was in touch literally with the stuff that the the enslaved had been working with, which was a, you know, it just felt it felt appalling. It, it felt mm -hmm. like a like um you know it 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 was as I say to you it was it was a, I was in a beautiful place experiencing a terrible thing and and the emotions were pre, were running pretty high. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to bring Laura on the same question. Uh, obviously, uh, you, you were in Grenada. I believe this is the second or the third time you visited Grenada. Second, yeah. Uh, you you spoke ad nauseum about um, your how how you came to connect with, for example. Uh, Dr. Nicole Philip Dow and and and, and mm -hmm. how uh, you know uh, you guys had a conversation about what can you do uh, in respect of uh, your own making a personal contribution which you made, um, but the, the same thing. What was it like going back and and what were some of those takeaways, reflections coming out of that visit? I mean, it was really extraordinary, Kellon, as John has said. And just a couple of days before I went, I talked to Decima Williams, uh, mm -hmm. as you know, the president of Grenada's Senate and mm -hmm. uh, a huge figure in the landscape of Grenadian politics, a minister in the revolutionary government and uh, teaching actually a course at Georgetown University this fall. Yes, on the I revolution. was actually at, at her lecture. Yes, yes I went <laughs> too. And it was wonderful to meet yes. her in yes. person because until mm -hmm. then we'd just spoken. And Grenada, uh, and Desma said to me, you know, Laura, when you go to Grenada this time to apologize publicly, you have to remember that people are so angry about slavery in ways that they can't even articulate probably. And that by going as a family, you're going to put a public face on slave ownership. And that is provocative. And it will, you, you just don't know how people are going to be, respond. And you really have to be prepared for that. And I found that to be incredibly useful to have that in my mind, that this was just very emotional. And it was really then summed up by the poet, Nigel DeGale, who spoke just before I did. You know, he delivered his poem as part of the public apology. And he, in his poem, he talked about wanting to live as the slave master had done. And he talked about wanting to sample white women. And... It was so powerful and I felt that he expressed the rage and the anger about the unfairness of, of slavery, which can never, ever be reversed. In a way, you know, he spoke to exactly what Decima had said people would feel. So mm -hmm. that to me, it was just, it was overwhelming. But amid that emotion over the past, there was also so much that was positive and there were... Um, a group of schoolgirls there who all came up afterwards to talk to me, who some of whom I'd met previously when I'd been filming for the documentary with Nicole Philip Dow. And, you know, they're, they're the next generation. They're teenagers. And they had so many questions and so many thoughts. They were so well informed uh, that I just found, I found it really to be inspiring, actually, the whole, the whole thing ultimately. And, and one woman came up to me and said, oh, St. Cloud, that's one of the estates where the Trevelyans were part ownership. That's where my dad's family is from St. Cloud. That means that your ancestors could have earned mine. And Decima said the same thing. Decima said, oh, Laura, good Lord, my father's family were from St. Cloud. What does this mean? So there was that just, you know, as, uh, as Garfield Hankey, who owns the computer shop in St. George's in Grenada, yeah. uh, 
who Nicole Philip Dow worked out potentially could have been named for the Mr. Hankey, who was the Trevelyan family agent on Grenada during slavery. He said mm-hmm. to me last year, you know, this is deep. And that was what I felt at the end of it, mm-hmm. that it's deep. But hopefully, as Nicole has said to me, that if you acknowledge something, that's where the healing begins. Mm-hmm. And uh, John, uh, I know that you have to leave, so I- I'm going to ask you this question. But the question was asked to your, your cousin, Laura. Incidentally, both of you seem to have an interest in, 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 in filmmaking, and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe that runs in the family. But um, uh, uh, a member of the Grenadian public asked Laura the question about your family's history. Laura indicated that she only found out recently uh, that her family was involved in uh, in, 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 in the enslavement of, of, of people of African descent at the level at which she did. Is, is it the same with you, John? How is it, how could you not know that your descendants, did you never question um, where your descendants' wealth came from? Was that never a question that came up? Was family histories hidden? How long does that work in your family? I know that families keep secrets, but... (laughs) Kellon, it's a really, really good question. And I don't think it's just about us and me personally. I think it's about the British population. I mean, what we've done Mm -hmm. is we've got got kind of selected amnesia about our colonial past. So here we were, this, this, this huge empire which extended to many parts of the world. Um, it, telling us, you know, uh, you know, what we learned about in school was what a great country, what a dynamic country, the Industrial Revolution, how we'd kind of, in, we'd, 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 we'd done these amazing things in the world. And what it neglected to do was tell us about the terrible practices, the extraction, the the enslavement, the, the you know, the rich humiliation, the, 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 the bondage. It, it's, it's appalling. So I'm ashamed to say that uh, I don't think we're 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 um we're unique. I think that what happened was that there's selective amnesia in this country, and it wasn't until the UCL um, database, the Legacies of Slavery database, uh, which digitised all the ownership of slaves, um, mm-hmm. in, and that's the thing that has revolutionised. And I think it's it's really has been the catalyst for this moment because mm-hmm. none of my father's family's living uh, relatives knew about. The, the family's involvement in slavery. The family had expunged that from their kind of history. What they'd done is they'd talked about how their public service and their their philanthropy and their even their they 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 also propagated this notion that really they were an abolitionist um, uh, family because they had many friends and and had married into an abolitionist kind of. Um, way of thinking but actually the reality was what they did was and i'm sure this is true of many families in britain what they did is effectively literally swept the skeletons under the carpet and it's it's shameful and i think i mean i i don't feel guilt about what we did because it isn't something i did but i certainly feel shame and i think that's a it's a difficult one to live with but i i agree with you and Kellon, i am personally um yeah, I, I, on behalf of my family, I'm embarrassed by the fact that we didn't know, and and I that's why we're trying. That's why Laura and me have been so keen on talking to people like you and doing something about about this. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, John, uh, thank you for appearing on thank the you. program. Um, we we certainly have you. you. Absolutely, we have been uh, talking on on, on WhatsApp, um, but certainly we would want to have you back. Uh, please communicate. Uh, to MP Lewis that uh, he owes us 
uh, on the Bob report. Let's see how we can reschedule things with him. But thank you I'll for being here, that. sir. Thank you. Yes. Bye. Absolutely. And uh, we, will, we will continue this conversation. Uh, Toro, same thing. Uh, uh, our colleague journalist, Kalistra Faria in Grenada, uh, uh, she, she, she intimated that uh, you and, 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 and other members of, of the reparations committee, that you guys are just, you know, you, you, you kowtowing to uh, neo-colonizers by, you know, just doling out the red carpet to these people who are coming bearing gifts around the question of reparations. Uh, Toro, what say you? Well, as I said earlier, um, um, allyship is important, um, whether yeah. it's in the apartheid struggle, the civil rights movement, um, even in the Grenada context, with the Grenada Revolution of 1979, the, the vanguard movement was the NGM, which you could call a left-wing movement, but there were business people who were on the right in that movement, and when the revolution occurred on March 13, 1979, there were allies on all sides part of the struggle. So allies are important. Um, of course, you'll, you'll check to see who your allies are, check their background, make sure they are genuine. We're not going into this blindly, but uh, of course, allyship is important. I think, of course, you'll have detractors, but I think even those people who may be critical of the reparations movement, I always ask them, okay, so what's the other option? Do nothing? And 99.9% .9 of the people will say, oh, I'm not saying not do anything. So. For me, personally, the struggle is worth it. I think um, I and most of us need to do that on behalf of our um, ancestors. They weren't able to struggle for reparations, get reparations. So even if nothing comes of it, at least for me, just getting involved in the struggle um, is important, and I think we need to do it. As I said, um, ask someone whether, okay, you criticize the reparations movement, maybe criticize the strategy, but what's the option? Sit on our hands, do nothing? And most people will say, no, I'm not saying do nothing. So the struggle continues. You know, we have a lot of work to do, bringing other people on board on all sides of the, 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 the racial issue, whether white, black, brown, whatever, all economic class, um, all parts of the world. We have to bring them on board, of course, and educate them. A lot of people are unaware, for example, on the CARICOM 10-point reparations plan. This is something we need to share, let people know what's involved. A lot of people say, oh, you guys are only looking for money. No, it's not just about money. Um, the other that, was, uh, that was the, uh, the, the, the mainstream media narrative in Greenland right. at the time, that uh, uh, the, the, the Trevelyan family, yeah. uh, again, it's actually, when we say the Trevelyan family, that, that's Laura's money, that's her personal right. money. Um, <laughs> well, if I would there, say there that family are, yeah. family are giving more, actually, in addition okay. to me. <laughs> right, so right, right. Okay, well, we, 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 we can actually talk about that. But, but the point about it is that the conversation was framed around uh, money. In fact, many people thought that uh, uh, members of the Grenada National Reparations Committee, they were just going to be pocketing this money. I guess they <laughs> thought that, uh, you know, Ali Gill and others were going to be you know, getting money for, for, for this. But, 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 but you, you get the point. So the, the point is that there has to be a lot of education, you say. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And also getting other people involved. In, it's, it's not, we don't want this to look like it's an elitist thing, that just a few people are doing this work. We may be leading in the struggle, but it's a struggle that everyone who is willing should be involved in, and we ought to try and bring them in. Laura, yes, go ahead, Laura. I just tell you that I was just yes. writing an email this afternoon 
to a family whose ancestors owned plantations in Jamaica. And as you both know and your audience knows, the fraught history of Jamaica is particularly abominable, especially the post-emancipation slaughter of a thousand Jamaicans long after the end of slavery. Uh, But I was emailing just this afternoon with a family who asked me, what should we do? Who should we speak to? And I said, well, you know, you should talk to the chair of Jamaica's reparations committee. So I think the Mm -hmm. fact that there is a structure in place, the fact that there is a roadmap, I think if you're talking to families thousands of miles away on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean who want to try to do something about what their ancestors did, the fact that CARICOM has this reparations plan, the fact that every island has a committee, the fact there's someone you can talk to, I think it's, it's hugely significant for those who who don't live in the Caribbean, know it, understand it. You know, the mm-hmm. fact that there is something there to hold on to is important. And uh, Laura, I, I would uh, have a follow-up question. I, I would go back before uh, getting to what your 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 future looks like in respect of uh, your own allyship, as as, as Mr. Depardine has. Uh, it's a great word. This. <laughs> allyship, Thank you. yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, someone joked that uh, our ancestors um, troubled your spirit. And, and so that troubling of the spirit caused you to retire early from the British Broadcasting Corporation as a reporter. Laura, what was I was surprised? I was I was well, OK, so kindly explain. Uh, what did you retire? What, what's happening there? Did you go no, I mean, to I, retirement I've, leave? Um, what's happening there? No, I've left. I've left the BBC because mm-hmm. I couldn't stay at the BBC and adhere to our very strict codes about impartiality and join the Caribbean's fight for reparatory justice. I walked the line as far as I could and then I began to feel that I was tripping over it and a particular incident came to mind where the Radio Times, which is a big listings magazine in Britain, asked me to write a viewpoint, an opinion piece about King Charles and what the royal family should do. This is a couple of months ago, long before, uh, you know, they signaled that they are, in fact, supporting research into the royal family's links to slavery. And so the BBC has a pretty Byzantine process. If you write anything that's public, it has to be approved by somebody internally, of course, and it has to not conflict with the impartiality guidelines and, you know, it basically can't be anything you wouldn't say on the air. And at the end of the Radio Times piece, the Radio Times editor said, well, can't you just say at the end of it, Laura, the king's, you know, our families apologize. Why can't the king? And I said, no, I can't say that. I can say on the one hand, the king could do this. On the other hand, he can do that. But I can't say that's what he should do. But that was what I really wanted to say. And so I felt like, you know, I've had such an amazing career, which I've loved every minute of it for 30 years. I've achieved everything that I wanted to. And then here was something else that I wanted to do where, you know, Sir Hilary Beckles really persuaded me that it would be important to have this example in the debate of somebody from a family whose ancestors owned slaves. That this This has been a missing part of it until now. And so... I thought, well, okay, if I could make a difference here, then I'm 54 years old. I would like to have another act. I would like to try. And so I'm excited this week, actually, to go to the State of the Black World Conference in Baltimore, 
where the theme, as you'll know, this year is reparations and healing, and where Grenada's Prime Minister, Dickon Mitchell, is a keynote speaker. I, I would actually, I would actually be at that event as well. Well, I it, hope so. that we'll I, meet. I'll, I'll get Callum. to meet you for the first time in person. Yes. <laughs> well, aren't you excited by that though? The fact that Ghana's leader is going to be there. Mia Motley, the Barbadian Prime Minister, is a Prime keynote Minister, speaker. Yes, she's going to be there as well. Well, mm-hmm. just the fact that so much is happening, there's so much to say. The African mm-hmm. Union has moved on reparations. It's, you know, and to me as someone who in my career at the BBC travelled all over the world, tried to join the dots for the audience, I feel like with this debate, there's, you know, there's a journalistic role. There's a reporting role, as you know, and I'm being asked to do so much writing for British newspapers and, and interviews that, that I feel there's a public education role, which is important, which, which can, you know, one can try to assist with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Has there been, within the context of your own family, has there been any pushback uh, to the overtures that you and uh, John and others have made in, in um, uh, coming forward in the way that you did? Is, is everyone on board in the family with this? That's a great question. Is one is one family ever united on anything, Kellen, I would ask? No, absolutely not. <laughs> no, no, exactly. <laughs> so and if you think, especially, you know, we're talking seven, eight generations since the original Sir John Trevelyan marries Louisa Simon. She's the daughter of the West Indian merchant, as they used to euphemistically refer to them, or slave trader. So there are probably a thousand descendants of the original Sir John, uh, 104 signed our family letter and there's probably a group you know of about that size now but absolutely people have parted company along the way people have felt philosophically you can't apologize for something you didn't do this is a dangerous precedent what is this going to mean for me are people from Grenada going to come and try to take my home you know I'm a pensioner living on a fixed income well what is what is all of this so yeah mm-hmm. definitely concern about what but but also a lot of people were persuaded by Sir Hilary Beckles joining a zoom call last summer with our family in which he spoke so eloquently and so forcefully and with such historical context that he persuaded doubters in our family of the power of an apology uh, the power of an apology. Uh, uh, Tor, uh, anything else you wish to add there in terms of um, what, what, what Laura articulated? Uh, of course, as a journalist, uh, Tor, yourself, you know uh, that, that, that when, you know, at least when I worked in Grenada, now I teach journalism to my students here, and uh, we, we are guided by ethics. Uh, we, we have an entire module on ethics, yes, yes. and um, th- th- these are ethics that you're guided by. I can't uh, go out uh, on a limb in, in my particular role here on, on, on the Burby Port and say things <laughs> that, uh, that, that would present a, an appearance of bias, you know, even though people still accuse you of being biased. You can of be the most unbiased person. I'm sure Laura knows this. The BBC gets accused of bias. At least in the context of the BBC, yeah. there, is, um, there are particular <laughs> protocols that the public can follow in, in filing complaints. I wish that existed in Grenada. But, but Tora, <laughs> any thoughts on what Laura just said? Yes, uh, and I just would like just like to 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 make the connection that um, struggles are linked, even though we we may not make the connections. So, for instance, if we look, take Grenada for example, has been thrust into the middle of this reparations issue, and sort of by accident. When you look at the struggle of Grenada, um, slavery, the Federal Rebellion, the Grenada Rev- Gary Revolution of 1951, the Grenada. Re- 
revolution of 1979. And then we have a young prime minister, and there's a global conference coming up, and he's chosen to be the keynote speaker. I mean, oh, the history is so, is so linked, but we don't think about it. And as I said, Grenada has been central to so much, a huge part of the history of the Caribbean. And here we are once again, and we sort of helped to, to put the reparations issue on this, this, the middle of the agenda of the Caribbean and, and of the world. And um, that's something, um, as I said, occurred by accidental. But we have to embrace it, as I said before. And to reiterate the point I made before on which Laura said, the education aspect of it, we ourselves have to be, get more educated on the struggle. There's a lot we don't know, and there's a lot those in the public don't know. So we all have well, to learn. Perhaps, so, so as, as I've always been advocating that there needs to be, and, and we, we hear this talk, and it's really frustrating because we hear all these conversations about we need to get educated, we need to get educated on this, we don't know this, we don't know that. But you look at the school's curriculum. You look at the priority that we give to history in our school's curriculum, that we still tell people Christopher Columbus discovered Grenada. How could you discover a place that people lived? The entire Western Hemisphere people lived there. So there is a lot that needs to be done. I get exercise over this as an educator, I'm sorry. But, but Kellon, Nicole Philip Dow is, has written a history of Grenada for school children, which is being published, I think, this year, and I, I and will be on the curriculum. So, you know, change is, is coming, and I, I wanted to just echo what Lincoln said about. Surely, it's no coincidence that Grenada is leading once again in the Caribbean. That Grenada is leading on the reparations issue. You know, this island. I say to people in Britain, it's the size of the Isle of Wight, which is a small island off the south coast, coast of Britain, because the the population is about the same. But Grenada seems to me, has just always punched above its weight. And yet again, here it is. Yeah. And yeah. I, just want to, I just want to make uh, the, just before to, uh, yes. Kellon, as we, we spoke earlier about um, taking legal action against European governments. And again, um, like the education part, the school curriculum, we all agree should be revised and um, a new curriculum introduced. But as again, we can't sit and say, well, we are not going to do anything if that doesn't happen. That's a long, hard struggle, just by taking these governments to court. So in the meantime, we'll do what we can do. Um, through your programs, through other programs, through Laura's writing, we'll, we'll engage in education. Getting to the curriculum part is the ideal. But yes. I know you are a real, realistic um, man, and you understand that will take a long time come in. So in the meantime, we've got to do something. The, I have to play the devil's advocate role here. As you uh, but folks, we will, we will take uh, the final break of the program, and then uh, we will come back uh, in our concluding comments. We will talk about the way forward, what uh, the momentum that, that the reparations uh, our struggle has gained in, in recent time, maintaining that momentum and, and, and really getting to results in respect of deliverables based on that 10-point CARICOM reparations plan. So uh, please stand by, folks. Uh, we will be right back after this. Uh, very proud of what you're doing, and I think it's, uh, it's much needed. So thank you so much for your contribution. Thank you. thank you again for watching the Bub Report. You as a listeners, we want to thank you uh, sincerely. Ashley, thank you so very much. Uh, Senator Chester Humphrey, welcome to the Bub Report. Mr. Mitchell, welcome to the program. Uh, the Honorable Jumani Williams, uh, we call him Jumani, who is 
the public advocate for the City of New York. The, the Honorable Basio Pande, uh, former Prime Minister of the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. Mr. Pande, welcome to the Bob Report of Grenada. Uh, the Honorable Tobias Clement. Uh, Mr. Clement, welcome to the Bob Report. I, I, is it Nikolai or Nikolai? I hope I pronounced Nikolai. it right. Nikolai. It's Nikolai. Thank you. Yeah. And, and welcome to the program, Her Excellency Ambassador Luan Gilchrist. Uh, Mr. Randall Robinson, you are here in your private capacity and in your personal capacity. Yesterday we learned that you were detained by law enforcement in Grenada. So you come from a family of public servants. Yes, you are a family of public servants. You're saying that you have to do more, but my question is, what have you done as, as President of the Union to ensure that that happens? These are the cards that I have drawn that I am the minister at this point in time. And for members of the but public... But you're also a servant of the people. Why would we have ambassadors representing the state that do not understand clearly what their terms of reference are? And viewers and listeners, welcome back to uh, this bonus edition, bonus Sunday edition of the Bob Report. Of course, our regular uh, Bob Report episode was aired this morning at 10 a.m., so you can always go back and check out the program on our social media pages and watch the program this evening at 8 p.m. on WPG10 in St. George's, as well as on the Grenada Broadcasting Network on Sunday at 5 p.m., as well as on CRFM Radio Sunday, uh, sorry, Wednesday at 5 p.m., uh, Wednesday at 4 p.m. as well on CRFM Radio to catch repeat episodes of this week's program. But I want to bring back uh, Laura as, as, as we get to the end of the program and, and Toro and talk about, uh, Laura, how, do you, how would you define your role? Uh, Toro used an apt word earlier, allyship. How are you going to define your role? I got a sense that your families have reached out to you. Uh, that you're engaging in a lot of conversation with some of the families in the UK. Do you see yourself as, as, as being that individual who would be able to uh, speak to those families and educate them in terms of what you have been able to, to do and, and perhaps a roadmap for them to get involved as well? Yes, I think I'm hoping to see it as a dual role. And actually, John mm -hmm. and I are part of a group of families who will launch a new organization in a week or so's time, all families whose ancestors profited from transatlantic slavery. And we're going to come forward and acknowledge our own role and past. And we're also going to support the various reparatory justice initiatives that are underway. We're going to support CARICOM's initiative. We're going to call on Britain's government to you know, engage in negotiations based on that. And we uh, hope, you know, later on that we can organize a conference, perhaps late next year or uh, late this year, early the following year, in which we can encourage all of the people that have come forward in so many areas of British life. You now have universities, you have the Church of England, uh, you have the Historic Palaces Association, you have the Guardian newspaper, you have all this acknowledgement in Britain that actually Britain's wealth was built to some degree on slavery. And for Britain, this is a revelation. I know for the Caribbean, this is not. But the fact that this debate is finally being had in Britain, uh, so I want to do everything that I possibly can to encourage, encourage that debate and also to advocate specifically on behalf of that CARICOM plan. You know, there's an opportunity now with the way that the University of the West Indies economists are working with CARICOM and Dennis O'Brien's repair movement to identify specific plans for each island. You know, there'll be actual numbers for 
health and education, uh, the amounts which are needed, and numbers on debt forgiveness, for example. So I think, you know, as a as a journalist, that there's a story to be told there, for sure, and a story that can be told in Britain, that, you know, this is what Grenada is, uh, this is what reparations would look like for Grenada. And, you know, in Britain, there'll be an election next year, there might be a change of government, who knows what will happen? But this is a moment where there's just so much momentum that you can feel. And so I want to do anything that I can to push it forward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, we will be watching this space. We love to say here on the Bob Report, we watch the space to see what, what that mm-hmm. looks like. Uh, it's a very interesting time indeed for this, for, for this issue. Um, Toro, uh, the, the future, I know that uh, there are some activities happening. With respect to, I know that there is an event happening, uh, Let's Talk Reparations, that's happening in St. George's next week. There is also a memorial lecture happening. So could you tell us about what the Local Reparations Committee in Grenada continues to do this year? Right. Um, The Local Reparations Committee, Grenada National Reparations Committee, they will be having ongoing activities. As you mentioned, the lecture um, will be having African Wear Day, to raise consciousness about Africa. the National Reparations Committee and the Caribbean Reparations Movement have no doubt that they will continue. The players may change, but this movement has come alive and it will remain there. My concern both for the Grenada National Reparations Committee and the Regional Committee is whether there will be actual buy-in from the government, because I think for, this, for the work to move expeditiously and effectively, there's got to be some governmental backing. Um, as we mentioned earlier, for the governments of Europe talking, yes, talk is one thing, but you also need material support to do a lot of the work. So my real concern about the future of the movement is about getting institutional and governmental backing for the work that is needed to be done. And the work will be going for many, many years. So as, far, as I said, as far as I'm concerned, the committees will remain the consciousness about reparations is there, but I, what I would like to see going forward is more governmental backing and institutional backing for the movement, both in Grenada and in the region of the Caribbean. You saying governmental and institutional backing from uh, indigenous Caribbean governments. Yes. Yes, uh, I yes. want to be that's, clear. That's what I was speaking uh, about, yeah. Are you suggesting that there isn't an appetite by, uh, at the institutional level for this conversation? I must say I haven't seen it. Maybe there is work happening in the background. Um, so I'm just speaking about the Grenada National Reparations Committee. Um, as far as I've, I've um, to this point where I'm speaking to you today, I I don't think there have been any tangible contribution to the, the committee, whether it's in terms of material space, whether it's in terms of whatever, there has been any um, tangible offer. So, um, as far as I'm concerned, at this point, I haven't seen anything, but I, I think we need to see more. That the government is out there, back in this, and said it's not just a few guys out there working hard to, to, to bring reparative justice for the former enslaved. Well, but, but, but Tor, you know, you, you know any time government gets involved at a particular level, it becomes politicized. And, you know, well, well, well uh, we can't get away from politics. I'm not telling them to take over the committee. I mean, I mean just like they give <laughs> subventions for spice masks, they get subvention for a whole bunch of things. We're not asking them to take over. We'll be watching them very closely. But uh, I don't see how we could do this work because at the moment, 
most of the committees um, survive with out-of-pocket contributions from the members. We can't it's, continue it's volunteerism. That. Right. Yeah. We can't do that forever, you know? So mm -hmm. at some level... No, but there, uh, there is always a cautionary tale there. Uh, we, of we course, of course. Of time. <laughs> we are out of time. This is a very important conversation. I want to respect you people's time. It's, it's a Sunday afternoon. Laura, you're in New York. Mm -hmm. I'm in D.C. The weather is beautiful. It is. Except I, I may not go outside because my allergies... Uh, are killing me today, oh, no. but I really want to enjoy, uh, maybe in the afternoon, uh, enjoy a walk in the park. But I want to thank both of you uh, for uh, uh, coming on the program, especially in the wake of the Trevelyan family apology in Grenada, a historic apology in the wake of what has happened since then, what, what appears to be a snowball uh, series of activities, the Guardian coming forward, uh, the, uh, King Charles uh, coming forward, um, and it, you know, to his credit, his, his, his mother didn't do that, uh, but <laughs> he came forward and, and, and said on the record that this is what uh, they're going to do. So, so I want to thank both of you for uh, agreeing to appear on, on the Burb Report uh, to have this conversation. Viewers and listeners, as a reminder, this program will be aired, repeated on, at, the, at the 7 o'clock hour um, here on, 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 on the Burb Report's platform, as well as in Grenada on, on a later date. So I want to thank all of you for appearing on the Burb Report. Again, viewers. Uh, guests, thank you. Viewers and listeners, thank you for participating. And this is where we say goodbye. Take care. Hi, everyone. Thanks for checking out the Bub Report social media pages. If you'd like to get more videos, show highlights, and watch our weekly live show, follow our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. And also subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can catch repeat episodes on Wednesdays at 4 and 5 p.m. respectively on CRFM Radio and GBN-TV in Grenada. We are also viewed on Sundays at 8 p.m. on WPG-10 throughout the Caribbean. Thanks for watching. Family, uh, we apologize for the late start. Of course, there's, uh, there's some technical difficulties that you have to figure out sometimes, and that's what we had to do. But we're here, and we're glad that you're here, right? Um, and thank you for, for sticking it out with us. Um, welcome to another edition of the Road Ahead Temple Family. My name, of course, is Frederick Morton Jr. I'm the founder, chairman, and chief executive officer of Temple Network, and uh, we are pleased once again, to have you join us here on the road ahead for another riveting discussion on one of the most important topics impacting the Caribbean, at least I believe, particularly as we navigate through the unprecedented COVID-19 pandemic. And that topic is reparations. Now, reparations is about addressing the devastating impact of perhaps the darkest chapter in human history, the extraordinary crime against humanity, slavery. 
making the case for the colonial empires, including the United Kingdom and Portugal and France and Spain and Holland and so many others, that profited greatly from the slave trade to participate in solving the myriad of problems that they created. Now today, we discuss the specific case for Caribbean reparations. CARICOM's leadership in this area, and specifically the 10-point action plan that was created to guide this process. In this regard, we are privileged to have with us a very distinguished panel of experts, a lovely panel of experts, I might say. And uh, we are uh, ready to go and, and to tackle this, this very uh, provocative issue. Uh, in moderating, I, I am joined by my esteemed co-host, Mr. Hugh Riley partner at the PM Marketing Group and former Secretary General of the Caribbean Tourism Organization, who, as customary, will introduce our esteemed guest panel. Hugh, good afternoon to you. How are you doing? Fine, thank you, Frederick. Uh, and the panel certainly is... Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Maureen Shepard is a social historian, the Vice Chair of the United Nations Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Director of the Center for Reparation Research and the immediate past director of the Institute for Gender and Development Studies at the University of the West Indies. A published author, she's written several books, many on subjects which we will be discussing today. Most recently, she was one of 60 women included in the Gleaners Jamaican Women of Distinction for 20 years. Professor Marine Shepherd, welcome to the road ahead. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Barbree Lamard is chairman of the Antigua and Barbuda Reparations Support Commission, a government-appointed commission whose mandate includes organizing education and awareness programs connecting reparations concerning reparations and the enslavement of our ancestors and establishing links with organizations with a mandate. He is a management consultant, an author, a director, and a playwright who has written five plays. He is also a collaborator, judge, and analyst. He is awarded the 2010 Friends of the Arts Sunshine Award for contributions to arts and culture in the Caribbean. Mr. Dobreen Omar, welcome. Thanks so much. It's my honor, my privilege. Great to have you with us. The Honorable Kozier Frederick is a member of parliament in the government of the Commonwealth of Dominica, presenting a constituency which includes the Caranago territory. His portfolio is Minister for Environment, Rural Modernization, and Caranago Upliftment. He serves on the Dominica Reparations Committee and the Kalinago Events Committee. Minister Frederick is a researcher, an educator, martial artist, careful now, uh, <laughs> and, and works with numerous youth organizations, civic groups, and the Kalinago Council. Uh, he is a regional and international speaker on Kalinago heritage and was Dominica's uh, country coordinator of the International Caribbean Ties Exhibition produced in the Netherlands in 2019. Minister Kozier Frederick, welcome to The Road Ahead. Frederick, that's our distinguished panel. Yes. Let's proceed. Yes, distinguished indeed. <laughs> now, um, welcome everyone uh, once again. 
Um, now, a few months ago, uh, you would have um, recall that we began this discussion with uh, another panel of leading experts, um, including Sir Hilary Beckles, uh, the Vice Chancellor of the University of West Indies. And um, now, I absolutely love how uh, Sir Hilary summarizes the issue of preparation. <laughs> he does it in such a succinct and, and concise way uh, for everybody to understand. So, so let's, uh, let's take a moment to listen to what he said um, in terms of, of bringing a context to this discussion, and then we'll jump off. Uh, let's, let's have a listen. Before we can discuss reparations itself, uh, we first need to address, in my opinion, the context in which the need for reparation arose. Uh, Sir Hillary, uh, I have heard you succinctly and eloquently uh, summarize the historical and contextual underpinnings uh, of slavery uh, that formed the foundation of the reparations case on many, many occasions. Uh, and you do that brilliantly. I would like to lean on you once again uh, to do so. Uh, as we begin this discussion. So, Hillary. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's a tremendous honor and pleasure to, to be with my colleagues on this panel and, and also to uh, uh, engage your, your audience on this very important uh, matter. When we speak of reparatory justice in the context of the, the African experience in the modern world, what we are talking about is the greatest crime that has been committed in respect of humanity in the last three to 400 years. We are looking at, in the first instance, a Western uh, economic structure that sought to maximize its production, its profitability, and its income generation. And the way they went about doing that was to globally enslave millions of African people, not only in the Americas, but in other parts of the world. It was indeed a global economic system. But slavery and the chattel, the chattel enslavement of black people, and we're not speaking about slavery in generic terms. We are speaking about a specific kind of enslavement, which we call chattel slavery, mm -hmm. where you convert people into property, you deny their humanity. They are not part of the human family. They belong to a special species of property. You legislate that. You build that into your constitution. And you take millions of people, reduce them to the level of chattel real estate and property, exploit them for your own enrichment. And at the end of that process, you said you're going to walk away from it. It's in the past. It's behind you. That historical experience, is very much a contemporary experience. The legacies of that crime and the diversity of the crime, the legacies are with us all around us today. You and I, we are very much still the victims of this. So we cannot disconnect that historical circumstance where this enormous crime was perpetrated from the consequences of it today in my time and in your time in our parents' time, this is the world in which we live today. And as such, we are entitled to justice. 
The crimes must be litigated, they must be settled, and until it is done, the challenge of victims feeling a lack of trust and commitment in the modern world, and those who believe that they could brush this under a carpet, walk away from it, don't look back, that that is not the way in which the world can proceed. Right. So there we, we have uh, Sir Hillary's succinct delivery of the, the, the issue. Um, let's start with you, uh, Professor Shepard, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, one of the first things you do um, typically when you've done something wrong uh, or you've caused harm or pain to someone, uh, we know is to apologize, right? Absolutely. And um, that is, in fact, the first point, and I assume that that's why it's there in the CARICOM's 10-point plan um, yeah. of action. Can you provide some context to that, um, that apologetic statement that is necessary? And uh, in doing so, you can perhaps outline the, the entire plan for us. Okay, right. So you heard Hillary talk about the crime against humanity. And so that is the justification for the demand for an apology because an apology is necessary, as you have outlined, when you commit a crime, when you do something wrong. And he has very eloquently explained what we are facing, what is, it, it, what is the crime. So uh, the CARICOM 10-point action plan rightly starts with the demand for a full formal apology. A full formal apology owns up to a wrong that is done. That's the first thing. There are three dimensions to an apology, a proper apology. You own up to the wrong. You say, yes, I did this, or my country did this. You apologize for, for what happened. You say, it was wrong, we're culpable, and yes. And then you commit to repair and non-repetition. So that's there. But let me say that the plan is not a sequential. In other words, if we never get an apology, we're not moving on to other parts of the plan. So the second um, point is Indigenous Peoples Development Program. The third is repatriation for those who desire it. And repatriation, by the way, is interpreted more broadly than being taken back, fully funded, to the place from which you were stolen. This is about also returning artifacts and documents that reside elsewhere and not in our space. Then, number four, the building of cultural institutions. Number five, the attention to public health crisis. Then we go on to illiteracy eradication, the rebuilding of an African knowledge program, psychological rehabilitation because of the harm of slavery and colonialism on our mental state and our psyche, technology transfer, and then debt cancellation, debt write-off, and monetary compensation. Now, monetary compensation only because of the, the money, the 20 million that was uh, paid to enslavers, we're asking back for that, as well as the, what apprenticeship would have valued. But apart from that, it's a development package that we're asking for. But an apology is very important. Other people have been given an apology, but in our space, People, states and leaders have gone around it to 
statements of regret or to express deep sorrow. That is not an apology. People make the mistake of thinking that that is an apology. It is not an apology. And so we are saying an apology is, is due, and we reject the notion that some people are using to deny us the apology, saying that it's too far in the past. So they are using yeah. the theory of distance to disconnect the crime, the historic wrong, from the contemporary legacies of that crime. Okay. Well, well two things. Um, well, there's so much that flows from your statement. Um, but two things that I'd like to follow up on. Um, the, the first is, who, has there been any nation, any country, that has issued the form of apology that is delineated in, in the 10-point plan? Um, and then, well, let's, let's, let's start with that. Yeah. Okay, so as the, the first serious demand from a state perspective would have been made during the bicentennial 2007 when um, Britain and its allies would have been joining to quote-unquote celebrate the passing of the act to end the transatlantic trafficking in enslaved Africans. And so that was an occasion when civil society groups, states demanded an apology from the, from the UK in OK. That was not forthcoming. What the former Prime Minister Anthony Blair did was to say, we regret, we are sorry. But, and then other ones have continued, like former Prime Minister David Cameron, when he came to the region in 2015, in the same year that Britain finished paying off the loan it borrowed to pay the planters the compensation money. And he said, we don't believe that's the way to go. Let's go forward and forget about slavery. And others have towed this line. So no, they have not, though they have um, apologized to other people. Uh, I remember when the Queen of England went to Ireland in 2011, and even before that, in 1997, when former Prime Minister Tony Blair went to Ireland, they did offer some kind of apology for, you know, colonialism. But so far, they have given apologies to other groups. For example, the Prime Minister, former Prime Minister of Australia to the Aboriginal people, um, you know, Kevin Rudd. But and in the United States, states have apologized, but not the federal government, you see. So they, we are calling on states, not just financial institutions and educational institutions, to make the full formal apology and so that we can go um, to the next step. Okay, I'm going to ask one follow-up question, and I'm sure yes. my co-host, uh, Hugh Riley, will want to jump in. Um, you did say that um, an apology or the 10-point plan is not sequential. Yes. Uh, and uh, and so we could we you know we, we I guess it would suffice if certain parts of the plan were addressed without the apology. Um, in in that regard, I mean, how 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 important is it to hear to to get yes. that up? Well, we are still calling for it. And yes, you're right. I did say it's not sequential because we have been working on other on other parts of the plan. The I direct as you. I was introduced as the director of the Center for Reparation Research, which was established in 2017 by the University of the West Indies at the request of the heads of government. And we have been having seminars on the 10-point action plan. So we have been doing the research and finding the justification 
for say illiteracy eradication or for psychological rehabilitation. And I've given lectures on, on, on psychological rehabilitation and involved psychologists and psychiatrists in that. So we are teaching and disseminating knowledge about the justification for the 10 points. And these are also in any conversation or any, any lecture we give or any conversation we had with any representative of state. For example, in our space, the High Commissioner uh, for the UK um, in Jamaica or in other parts of the Caribbean. So we use the plan as a negotiating strategy, but we are still saying that the full formal apology, should, it should occur to any one of conscience that mm. is the first thing you ought to do. Right, right, right. Well, you get no objection from me on that. Uh, um, <laughs> Mr. Riley. Yeah, well, thank you, P Professor Shepard. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you've given such an interesting um, explanation of, of where we are uh, on, on the whole business of reparatory justice. And one of my questions, actually, I have two questions on mm -hmm. both uh, at the same time. Um, one is, what, what's the region's response been as, as, as a Caribbean group uh, to the matter of, of reparations? And you did explain that there's been a lot of, of discussion at the uh, level of government to government. And, uh, and certainly you yourself and the academic institutions have gone to the trouble of teaching what this is all about. But my, the second part of my question really is, how are Caribbean people engaged mm -hmm. in this? Is, is it entirely an academic discussion at this stage? Absolutely not. Caribbean no. really engaged with this business of reparations? We, the National Committees on Reparation, um, they're called different things. The National Commission, the National Council, the Support uh, Committee, whatever it's called, we have national bodies in many Caribbean countries. And again, this was one of the strategies laid down by the heads of government. And the, the, the members are from a diverse group of people. In Jamaica, for example, I'm sure um, in Antigua, Barbuda, we have Rastafari. You know, we have representatives of the churches. We have academics. We have trade unionists. So it's a broad-based conscientizing in our space process. In other words, we're educating and we're having conversations with NGOs and civil society organizations, with teachers and with students. In fact, the St. Lucia Reparation Committee has partnered with the Center for Reparation Research on a year-long school lecture series to ensure that the children get this information. So it is not a top-down effort. It's lateral, and it's, it's, it's taking place all over the Caribbean. And also, we have engaged internationally. We have connections with the National African American Reparation Commission in the United States. We have partners in, the, in EU countries, in Sweden, in the Netherlands, we, we have in the UK. So it's broad-based, and we are trying to build a mass movement um, for this, not just academic, not just state. Because you know states re require support from the constituencies. Yeah, we have, um, before you continue, um, Hugh, uh, folks, you have noticed that uh, we've lost uh, two participants. <laughs> 
Um, I believe that there's been some sort of technical difficulty that uh, is being worked out, but they'll be back. So, Professor Shepard, you're more than capable of holding the fort down. So, um, <laughs> we, we, we realize that in fact. So, so oh, here's Minister Frederick. I see the minister is back now, yes. Yes, in, indeed. Um, uh, my, my, my point remains so that you're more than capable. Um, Hugh, you have a follow-up question? If not, I, I do have a question. Please, please go yeah. ahead. You? Can... Yeah, please go ahead. Okay, well, all right, fantastic. Well, um, Professor Shepard, you, you touched on something, um, and, and clearly this cannot just be an academic uh, discussion no. for it to really take root. So it's heartening to hear that, that you know, it, it's not seen that way. Uh, and that it's moving in a more broad-based discussion. Even if it is seen that way, that's not the truth, is what I'm saying. Right, okay. People Fair enough. may Fair perceive enough. it that way, but on the ground, it, 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 I don't see how they could. We even had a run for reparation, a youth run, a youth rally for reparation. Okay. It moved up from, you know, Antigua Barbuda, Barbados, Guyana, and the center has actually been going around. Well, COVID has interrupted that. Well, we were in the Caribbean to talk to media. I mean, I've been to Antigua Barbuda on the radio, the TV. So we are using media. And that is why we thank you so much for this platform. Um, because media, are, the various forms of media are important to get our message out. And Indeed. there, we are everywhere um, trying to educate about this issue. Awesome, awesome. Well, you certainly have Tempo Networks, as we've mentioned before, as a main pla a major platform to, to mm -hmm. disseminate this information. You can count on us. Um, there, there is a oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> there is. Um, you you did mention, and this is a this is a very um, interesting topic for me. I mean, um, mm -hmm. the, the 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 part of the plan that talks about the psychological impact of yes. of slavery. Right. So yeah. um, the, the Honorable Robert Nesta Marley said, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. Well, actually, mm -hmm. it was Marcus Garvey, right? Marcus Garvey. Um, yeah, it was Marcus Garvey. But, but, but a lot of folks would say it was Bob. He's popularized. Yeah, he's popularized. That's okay. We <laughs> all quote from other people, right? That's, and, it, that's um, exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly okay. Right. Well, I, I, I am a Garveyite because for many reasons, but I, also, I was born on the same day as Marcus Garvey, which is August wow. 17th. Oh wow. Yeah, I'm yeah. a garbage for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but he did say emancipate yourself from mental slavery. Yeah. So so give us a sense of the impact of slavery on our mentality, our thinking, our psychological, you know, perspective and view that is that has caused this this sort of a you know devastating impact in so mm -hmm. many areas. Uh, can you give us a sense of that? Well, first of all, let me say, I'm just a medical doctor and I have not diagnosed people, right? But that's right. That's we, are looking, we are looking in our society to see certain manifestations of what our conversation with psychologists and, and psychiatrists would say, well, you know, that's a manifestation of a person or a, a, a society or a set of people who have lost something. And I see that I think we are not too clear about our, our origins and identity. And even if we are clear, not everyone wants to accept. If you go into a room before you give a lecture and you say, put up your hands how many people are African 
I guarantee you won't even get 10% of people in our space doing that, okay? So that's a sign that you are denying your origin and your identity, which goes back to Africa for the majority of people across the Caribbean. Then we have these pro-colonial tendencies. We, we, we are, it's almost like we're a people suffering from identity theft. People stole our identity, stole our name. They told us our spirituality, our beliefs were wrong. They told us that they changed our name. They, they even taught us to be ashamed of the black skin, even though Marcus Garvey said it's not a badge of shame. But many people are bleaching because they are ashamed of their black skin. Um, or in our Caribbean, I don't know if you have ever confronted this. Mm-hmm. Um, we have heard people give people nickname of Blackie, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, 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 yes, and, and, and stuff like that. There are even people whose surname is slavery because the, mm-hmm. the plantation owner did that to denigrate our people. We are arguing in, our, in 2020 about hairstyles. That, oh, you, it's not corporate, you can't wear rasta locks or sister locks. And in Jamaica, we have a case where a young right. girl was told, don't come back because that hairstyle is going to, you know, is not okay for school. And also it will attract, you know, lice and junjo and all this kind of thing. So I'm saying that psychologically we are damaged because of the oppressive nature of enslavement because of the oppressive nature of this crime, because of the rape, the sexual torture of our mothers, our grandmothers, our family. And so we see it coming out in many ways. We don't even want to make Caribbean history something that children should study, you know? Uh, I don't want to go on and on about it. And, and look at the poetry of some of our people, especially when they are in exile, when they live abroad. Look at Una Marston. She has written poems like Kinky, um, Kinky Black Hair, Kinky Blues, you know, I Am Black, you know, they call me Nico. And if you read all those in exile, all the literature of people written in, uh, who, who have been in exile, meaning voluntary, yes, but they're not in the Caribbean for one reason or another, they are away and they write back, Lamin and others. Wait. So we know what the effects are, and psychologists are telling us what the effects are. We need to repair that, but the reason it's on the 10-point plan is that it can be repaired with more social infrastructure to address that um, mental health facilities and also educational institutions so that we don't discriminate against people who are mentally challenged. Mm-hmm. Mr. Riley, what an amazing answer, eh? I, I think so. Um, some of what uh, you've said, Professor Shepard, we uh, really would love to hear. Uh, More. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And uh, Dorbreen Omar uh, is, is uh, uh, ready and willing to talk about some of that. Unfortunately, he dropped out of the, uh, of the panel at the moment because of our technical issues. I don't think Dorbreen's back yet. Uh, one of the 
said, uh, Professor Shepard, that's so poignant, you know, is that there are people who are saying, well, you know, why are we, why are we talking about this now? Why do we want an apology now? I mean, it's so far uh, in the past. Uh, and then you bring it all right home to us into the present and start looking at the effects that this genocidal act is still having uh, on our people. It is not about the past. It is very, very present. Very, very quick story. Recently, I had a, a conversation, family connection type conversation, and pointed out to, to some people in that discussion that my own grandfather, with whom I was very close, was born in 1902. His mother, whom I also uh, had conversations with when I was a boy, was born in 1884. Her dad was born in 1851. I mean, you, you make it, people make it sound as though we're talking about something that happened in the Middle Ages, and we are talking here about right. effects on our lives today, and we're talking about people that we knew who were from the 1800s. Absolutely, absolutely. Because Alexander Mighty, who is my great-great-grandfather, was born in 1829. So personal to me, that is my family. We have managed to trace. So it's not too far in the past. And, in, and, and also, I did my DNA test because I know I'm suffering from identity theft as well, and I'm trying to recover some of what was stolen from me. And my DNA test uh, put my mother's family squarely in Cameroon. How did people from Cameroon reach over here? Mm. Why does my DNA test show Cameroon? Somebody is responsible for that. And that's part of this repatriate justice movement. And we're using everything we can, all measures, all strategies, to try to hold people account and to say reparations has been paid to other groups. What about people of African descent? What about African people? The closest they came for African people would have been in the case of the Mau Mau. And even so, just like the UK High Commissioner here in Jamaica said, we don't pay for people. Our ancestors cannot be so treated as dead people who don't matter. They matter in the way that George Floyd matters. Breonna Taylor matters. She matters. So they are dead, but they matter. And I think what we can do for their legacy, as other people I see doing now, they are financial institutions, they are universities, there are insurance companies like Lloyds of London taking responsibility, owning up, and saying we have to engage in a repatriate justice conversation. But states have remained reticent. And calling on the state to say, you created the environment within which all these institutions and so on. We're not taking them off the hook, but we're saying. Somebody started this. You capitalized it. You conceptualized it. Your cities got rich from it. You built the ships. And you, co you co-opted other people in your criminal enterprise. Therefore, you have the major part of the responsibility. Indeed. indeed. I, I, I'm sorry. I, I couldn't uh, agree more. In fact, uh, you, know, you mentioned some institutions, but even... Even the Church of England, even churches yeah. benefited, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and 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 the 
the owning up to that is is now at, at a point where it must happen and we we must demand it yes as but this, as, as professor Bethel says this can't only be the the year of apology or the you know the correct. of apology you need to do something so, so this is one step even if it is that they were using the word apology which you're not and some of them who are using apology they're saying but not for the historic wrong we will give you grants and aid and so on we're not mendicants that's right. It's a right. You harmed us. It's a right. Indeed, indeed. Let's let's uh let's take a, a, a little journey over to Dominica. I think uh the nature island is calling. Minister Frederick. I'm terrific, I'm terrific. Thank you. I'm glad that you were able to get back in. We missed you for a moment. Um, right, right. Okay, so so let's let's talk about uh, let's take a step back, I suppose, right? Because um, there were folks here when Columbus decided he discovered the place, right? Um, there were folks living and and thriving and 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 happy, and uh, and then Columbus comes and says, "I discovered the place," and then we know what happened after that, right? So let's talk about reparations as it relates to in the indigenous population, right? So like, like the Kalinago population of Dominica. Can you, you describe for us the case for reparations for indigenous people in particular um, and, and how that you know, fits into the, the case uh, for the enslaved Africans? Yes, um, so Frederick, I, I, I want to feed on the energy of um, um, Professor Shepard. Great um, energy. Yes, um, that, that energy there. Just, and to say that, um, that for, for a very, very long time, um, the, 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 the sort of disconnect with the indigenous population was sort of something prevalent in, in, in our Caribbean society. And, and, and we are happy to be part of this movement for reparative justice because, of course, it all began with us. Um, these, these people came and they invaded our space. And while we stood and we fought um, a battle and uh, battles, and, and we, we, we were on the verge of extinction, and we were not willing to, 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 to participate in a sort of capitalist enterprise. And, and we see the, the, the gradual movement of getting the other people, um, in that sense, people of African descent. Um, so, so we have to dig deep into that past, and, and there's a lot of um, archaeological evidence to suggest that, that there, 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 there was a thriving um, population in the archipelago, all the way from Bahamas in the north to Trinidad in the south. Um, and we have, we have seen a, a sort of movement during the, during the time of conquest to, to, to label that population as being ungodly barbaric animal life and, and to create a, a, a sense that these people are inhuman so they should be gotten rid of. And I, I have argued many times that um, the, 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 the entire Christian doctrine of discovery was really what um, um, caused the demise of the, of the indigenous population. And, 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 I say, and I say it without categorizing the population because even, even the, the European chronicles would suggest that the European eye could not discern the differences. So I, I as, a, as, a, as a modern, a modern day indigenous um, brother, I, I refuse to use terms like the Arawak and Taino and Kalinago 
Really? I, I think we are creating, we are, we are, we are continuing to perpetuate the, the, the categories created by someone who came. And it is something that has to, we have to kind of emancipate ourselves from. And just knowing that we had a rich culture, a very rich heritage, and some of it, I will tell you, is very prevalent in our, in our present society. And so, for instance, um, Prof spoke about the, the identity theft, and, and we lost our names and, and our religion, all of this. There are countries in the Caribbean that are indigenously named. Mm-hmm. Jamaica, for example, and Haiti, for example. And it is not part of the popular discourse. And so we, we, we are still, while we are on a move for, for, for reparations and justice, we also must also take some time off and, and, and deconstruct those, those um, sort of um, categories created by, by the colonizers. Uh, a, a country with its own flag and your national flower and your own anthem and your own um, um, national dish, all of this is, is really, really uh, sort of um, separating us within the Caribbean space. Mm. And so we are not we are not gravitating towards the collective, and that collective would have come out of the indigenous population, where we were moving freely across the Caribbean region, and trading, and uh, so the idea of a fear of a, of, a, of a free movement of people was evident in that space for such a long time. So we we understand we understand the path. We understand that there has to be justice, and like Prof said, we, it is it is not too late. It has to be part of the conversation. And we have to have an unlearning or a re-education of all of the aspects that cause us to be in that state. Um, so a small population exists in Dominica, but I, I can guarantee you that they are, they are, they are, if we do a proper DNA analysis of the entire region, we will find pockets of indigenous populations right across the Caribbean. Some of it is evident in, in facial features, etc. But some of it is also evident in the in the way people people socialize and the way they, they participate in everyday activities. So we we, we want this to be done. Um, I I I get it a hundred percent. And um, you made a statement right at the end um, about um, sort of cataloging. Um, do you know? I mean, do uh, is there a is there a, a de- well, certainly a desire, but th- is there an effort to catalog the size of the community at this point, or um, do you have some understanding outside of Dominica of what the population um, is throughout the Caribbean? Yeah, so, so we have a, a basic understanding, and we also, there's also the move to create this kind of connectivity, because we, we know for a fact that there are the Garifuna in, 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 in St. Vincent, Wow. Um, which was the, 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 uh, a mixture of the Carinago and people of African descent. We also know there's, there's, a, there's a small community in, in Santa Rosa in Trinidad. Oh. Um, and we know that there's an emerging um, consciousness in, in, in Puerto Rico and Dominican Republic, for instance, of people going back to, uh, to, to tracing their, their roots to the Tainos. So there's that movement. Mm. So it's, it's an exciting movement. Because it, 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 is, uh, it, it is such a, it is, it is a, a regional movement, and, and that's, what, that's the kind of view I would like us to appreciate, that reparative justice, the justice for genocide against indigenous peoples of the Caribbean, it is, it is a, a regional movement. We should not confine it to a particular 
European style of construct because really, uh, uh, folks, what we're doing, if we don't break down those barriers, we're creating consciously this for ourselves and something that not assist us in, 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 in understanding and appreciating the, the need for, uh, for that, that sort of justice. So we if do have... Allow, sorry, if you could just allow me to piggyback on something he said. Um, may sure. I? Yeah. And I just wanted to, to say thanks to Minister because I told you about the lecture series that we have in collaboration with the St. Lucia Reparation Committee. And he, um, MP Koya Frederick was part of a panel. And the, that lecture was titled The Myth of Extinction. And so mm. that, that's one of the things that we have to do, not just with the children, but with our own adults who believe that, oh, what are we talking about? Where are these people, you know? Right, right. There. And so, so I wanted to, to, to mention that lecture. And we had another lecture before that where we had the chiefs, some of the chiefs, talking to the children themselves to say, we are here. We have always been here. Our people have been here. Santa Rosa community, they also spoke, the chief from, from, um, spoke. So I, I hear the minister calling for decolonization of the narrative. And this is where the sense of reparation is also aligned. You know, we are part of our role is to research, disseminate, engage in decolonization, which the University of the West Indies has been doing for a very long time, ever since it was established, trying to clean up that misunderstanding and mislabeling and, and, and the myth of discovery and others. We want to en ensure that our children know that people are here, but that genocide, they were a genocidal act. They, they think that because we say they were subjected to genocide and genocidal intentions and actions, so why are they here? So we, we have had to clarify that, that it doesn't mean everything one has disappeared. And mm -hmm. so to talk about what Minister referred to as the reclaiming our name. Don't you talk about a Haiti, but remember, we should be saying Haiti, not Haiti. Haiti, that's correct. And Jamaica has Haiti. also been, been, been changed, you know, from the initial spelling and pronunciation. And I know that in Dominica, when I was there to give the Eugenia Charles le public lecture, I, 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 I came upon a controversy. There was a movement to change the name back to Waikipapuli. But no, the Colombian name of Dominica has stopped. So we have, the point is, while we are saying Black Lives Matter and looking outside of the Caribbean, we need to focus here and say, but we need to do something here as well. We need to teach that African people's lives did not begin with the trafficking, as dark as that was. Ivan Van Sertima, the Guyanese scholar, has told us they came before Columbus, and we have evidence. So yeah. I hear your appeal for decolonization. We're on board with you for renaming, for us to see ourselves as a collective, but also to understand that what happened to the indigenous people was a crime against humanity, and they have had to just rebuild their lives, and we honor them for the effort to do that. And we are struggling as African people, too, to even bear a collective name of Africans. Yes, yes. I just thought I would, you know, interject those few points. 
Yeah, so yeah. they're very important points. Mr. Riley. Absolutely. And, and I mean, to give further context to it, I mean, first of all, we are talking about continuity and lineage, and we're talking about a very strong cultural and historical presence that we obviously still have and will continue to have. But we're also talking about genocide uh, in the sense that, um, I, I mean, the, the history tells us that in 1700, um, there were three million indigenous people uh, in the Caribbean, and, and, um, and genocide took care of those numbers to a large extent, to the point now um, where indigenous peoples are down to the tens of thousands and no longer millions. But the point's well taken that, um, that, that uh, we're, we're here to stay. And, and let me not forget to say what an honor it is anyway to, to meet someone on this panel um, who is absolutely who is, is uh, who's Kalanago. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a pleasure to have you with us as well. I have a quick question for you, uh, Minister. So the CARICOM Reparations Commission lists Indigenous Peoples Development as a specific item on the 10-point action plan. Mm -hmm. What is that? How will that program work? Uh, and, and how far along is it? Yeah, so 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 um, the, the, the development plan is is is, is an attempt to to create opportunities for the indigenous population, and, and for sure the, the University of the West Indies has led that that movement, and I actually I'm a product of that movement. That's why I'm very proud to be part of this panel. Uh, in 2008, I received this Afro Indigenous Scholarship. Um, mm. It is something that I would have loved to have done many months ago because I I, I came to the university very late. My parents could have afforded it, etc. And I was given the opportunity to 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 go out in a neighboring neighboring uh, Caribbean island and, uh, and to 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 understand the, the the movement for for an education. And I and at the UV I did the history and political science, and that's why. So I'm not an MD by chance. I'm an, I, I can I can say for the record that I am a member of parliament because of the, the move in 2008 and before a little before to have some form of program that positively affects the indigenous population. So I'm a product of that, that initial movement. And so we, so although we, the, the community on, on the island, we have this concern, um, are we going to get caught a check? Um, are we going to get the money in our, in our bank accounts? But it's also important to know that the, the reparative movement is beyond, or it's, it's, it's more than a single check or a, a monetary payment. It has in it, um, uh, an ability to create institutions and, and programs that can positively affect um, lives. Because like Prof said earlier on, we, 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 we have seen the disruption of, of, of our people and loss of identity. And these programs have to, to, to encourage that movement. Um, the, the teaching of, 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 of the, the history of our schools and the, mm -hmm. the curriculum, the, the using of our names. Actually, I have a son, a four-year-old son, I, I named him a Kalinago name. Because I, I thought it would be, be a, a wise thing to, to, to honor the ancestors who, who had needs of their own. Mm -hmm. And so all of this is important. And, and to, to, we are right now doing a bit of the English language, the language itself, getting bits and pieces from the archival material from these French missionaries. So, so the program is, is something that we're doing. And I must say, um, I, I, I'm not being biased here by saying that the present government with which I, I, I feel have done a lot to, towards that sort of movement. We have established the, the, the Ministry of Kind of Affairs, a department over a couple of years. We have had a name change in 2014 from Carib 
to Kalinagos, which is now official. Um, we, we, we see a number of people get, get in, in, in involved in the public service. The opportunities are shared equally for people of indigenous descent, like myself. So all of these are those things that make that sort of development program important. And so uh, the, 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 the final take from this is that what is so very, 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 very interesting about this is that we are the crafters of that program. We decide for ourselves how we see ourselves moving forward. And I'm very happy to have the opportunity to, to, to be part of the European movement because I suspect if it was, it was the opportunity was given to the oppressors, they would have created for us what they wanted, not what they want for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So this, this is how we do the, the development process itself. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned the, the whole notion of reparative justice not just being about a check, because oftentimes when you talk about reparations, that's the first thing that springs into people's minds. Oh, uh, it, 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 it's just about money. So I, I'm going to ask uh, you to just expand a little bit. And, and, and Frederick, if, if we could get Professor Shepard to opine on this as well. Just talk about some of the other non-monetary benefits of, of which there are significant numbers uh, of, of reparatory justice, non-monetary. First you, Minister, and, and then if Professor uh, Shepard can... Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so for sure we, we have to look at our institutions and, and, and of learning and how, how, they, how they inculcate within them um, the sort of narrative that leads and that speaks to reparations and, and indigenous genocide. We have to get to. We also have to get through to... to even our spiritual institutions, because even as we speak, the, the, my, the population of, of my community is predominantly Christian. So we have, we have little or no trappings of an, our indigenous religion, uh, which I, w- I would argue that um, colonization is almost complete because we, we lost almost all of our trappings of our heritage. We also have to look at the opportunities for education. It's very important because, like, some of the, some of the, 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 the great leaders in, in, in historical context have spoke about an education as being a sort of liberation from, from, from a present existence. Um, and we also have to look at how, how do we um, develop our arts and crafts and how do we keep the material culture of, of the communities growing. So all of these are, are non-monetary um, sort of benefits we can derive from, from that movement. Yeah. Um, you want me to jump in here? Okay. First, let me just say something. When you have a case, one of these is a lawyer, I think, or maybe more than one. <laughs> I don't know. But when you have, when you take a case to court, let's say, you're awarded damages, you're awarded monetary compensation, and you spend it how you want. Nobody says why you're spending it this way or that way. That's your business. That's the first thing. So nothing is wrong with money. And if it is that that is what some people want, they have a right to say that's what we want. And to say, but no, don't give it to people because they're going to buy um, bling bling. So what if that is what you want to do with your money? However, they are saying that it is better to put, to demand money, by the way, because it takes cash to care. It takes cash to develop, right? So we'll have to negotiate for a financial package. That financial package, however, 
we were put into a pool for development. And we have the strategy. We have talked about the health crisis which we have in our region. We have seen how COVID-19 is affecting black people right across the world, not just in the Caribbean. Look at Brazil, look at other parts of Latin America, look at the United States of America. And then people say, oh, well, because some of you are old, well, old age is not a reason to die. And you can or they have comorbidities. What are the comorbidities? And why so many black people have them? Type 2 diabetes, hypertension, because of enslavement and 300 years of bad treatment and bad diet and too much salt and too much sugar because that's what the diet was and the intergenerational transmission of the intolerance of processing sugar and salt. So I don't have all the medical answers, but I'm saying that that's from what I've been learning from my medical friends. That's part of it. So then we inherit this illiteracy because remember, our post-colonial governments have been running to catch up, to use their own resources to have to build societies. And we have to credit them with that, even if we're not satisfied with the pace of it or whatever. So a financial package properly negotiated by an independent group will be able to say we need so many schools if we are going to address access to education, if we are going to access, uh, um, have quality education, we need so many teacher training colleges and so many teachers trained. We need clinics, hospitals, trained doctors. We need money for that. So the, so the package is going to be one which is, is going to be financial, but it's just not going to each person's bank account. It is the, for the collective, that collective for, uh, uh, of which minister speaks. So this is how it will work. But I just wanted to say, nothing wrong with money. It is just we are using the money in a different way. But I want to also go back to the issue of education because Honorable Koza Frederick is here as a living testimony of what happens when somebody invests in people's education. And so there is internal reparation going on in our own societies. And I have to thank Professor Hilary Bettles for that as well, because you have heard Cozy Frederick thank him. But mm. maybe what you don't know, Minister, is that I introduced something called Taino Day, Indigenous People's Day in Jamaica, because they are here somewhere, even residing in our DNA. People right. from um, AfricanAncestry.com, they tell me, that they have done tests in our state and they and part of that mixture is indigenous people. So they are here somewhere and reside in the Maroons and so on. So I asked Professor Beckles when he was principal of Cable Campus to can you finance some of the indigenous people, students you have there, let them come to Jamaica so that we can share this presence and this knowledge and their culture. And it was so wonderful. He did. So students gathered, they wanted to touch them. Oh my God, they told me you were dead. Your people were dead. It was, it was, wow. it was transformative. Mm -hmm. These are the kinds of actions we need by thought leaders like Hillary Beckles. Thought leaders, people with a sense of justice and how they can as administrators turn their jobs as administrators into 
a, a kind of job, a kind of administration which a, a addresses the colonial mess that was left here in our education system and ensure that there are ethical institutions geared towards the people of the region. And I really hope we have him around for some more time because this is a work in action. But I wanted to put that in. Indeed, indeed. Well, I, um, again, there's so much packed in that. Um, I, you know, the issue of money uh, is, uh, you know, it's a very rare because, um, yes, in law, and I am one of the lawyers on the panel, um, that's what you go for. That's the compensation, monetary damages. And you're right. Nobody asks how you're going to spend it after. So this, this, this idea that we should be running away from monetary compensation no. is one that needs to be completely, completely. That's right. That's right. In fact, what we propagate uh, the fact of how we want this money to be used. Is that the difference? Indeed, indeed. In fact, I mean, you probably can can help me uh, sort of elaborate on this point. But when when slavery was abolished, um, there was a a scheme put in place in order to um, compensate not the slaves but the slave owners yeah. for the loss of their property. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and indeed, there was the scheme said you would get, and I can't remember the numbers, but let's say 20 million. 20 million. Uh, it was 20 million. Okay. So you get 20 million, and then the other 20 million uh, would come from the slaves themselves. Um, so from there the was From the so-called apprenticeship system, the scamming. That was called right. apprenticeship. Yeah, in um, labor for four more years. Right, correct, correct. So, well, I, in see, that, I didn't go through that, I know, but for a different reason. Uh, Darwin, I'm so sorry, Darwin had a power cut. So he yes. Oh, is that what happened? Yes, but he oh. would have told us about that, you know, about. Ah, I see. I see, I was wondering. Okay, yes. well, we'll have. We'll have to have him on for another panel because he, he has that he would have to bring forward. Um, yes. But 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 yes, and and I, I want to pursue this issue of money again because I, I just think it's important. And and as a lawyer, that, and and sort of developing the case um, yes. that might ultimately have to be litigated if we are yes. to get anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. it, we have to stick on this point for a second. So here you have. Uh, at that point, um, you know, at least an understanding that there needed to be some compensation for some folks, the wrong folks, but some compensation, right? And then let's 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 uh, let's um, teleport into our current situation with the COVID pandemic, right? So you you get a COVID pandemic, and immediately all the countries, and certainly those countries that are able to do so, like the 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 superpowers like the United States and the UK, they develop stimulus packages, right? That's right. And they have to stimulate the economy. And mm -hmm. that, that stimulus package does include a check mm -hmm. <laughs> to every taxpayer and citizen, right? And you mm -hmm. have to demonstrate, of course, that you're entitled to the check, but you get a check. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and somehow they, they come up with a scheme that, that is supposedly equitable in the distribution mm -hmm. of that money, right? Mm -hmm. So we need, to, we need to be able to say in, the, in, the, in, the, in moving this case along that it isn't impossible to come up with a scheme in order it's to... It's not impossible. You're yes, it's not impossible. And of course, the Caribbean, Caribbean governments have been doing their part 
in trying to give a stimulus package also to mm -hmm. the vulnerable people. I certainly know Jamaica has done that. But it's not within the, the power, it's not within our economic resources to give anything that looks like what they are giving in the developed countries, you see. And I firmly believe that now is the time to push more for justice for that financial, financial package that will help us to cope with what we're facing now, climate change. Where you think that environmental degradation started with plantation construction, you know? Right. Yeah, they, I mean, they, I think the minister will tell you, they've cut down trees, um, mm. plantations, you know, buildings, and, and without any concern, later on, of course, they suffer from drought. Um, and we, we are seeing the effects even today. We're vulnerable. And it, it all started with that. And so we're saying, yes, at the moment of emancipation, what is now 17 billion pounds sterling would have been given out with Jamaica getting about, you know, I don't know, 30, between 30 and 40% of it because of the number of enslaved Africans. And this is what was so, what, why Professor Becker talked about the racism of the Emancipation Act. Mm -hmm. The Emancipation Act presupposed it was based on the, on the notion that our people were property. Because the property that they said we are going to, you know, assign money for this value. So they had to value every single person. A child, what does a child value? If it's below 12 or over 12, over 6. What about a man? It's so and so. What about a woman? If they are challenged in some way, okay, well, that's not so valuable. In fact, my, my colleague, Professor Chris Mandropper, tells me that even runaways were valued and paid mm -hmm. for. And then now the apprenticeship system, so-called, value another 25 to 27 million um, pounds from what Professor Becker's research shows. So, and then they borrow this money, pay the planters, and then tell us it was in the, uh, everything is in the history. Is, is, is history. Why did they just finish paying it off in 2015? Mm -hmm. Which means that taxpayers in the UK, black people, paying for their own. To pay, to pay, exactly. You know? And then what about Haiti? Look at what France extracted in, as reparation from Haiti. You know? Uh, so we are talking about the, the unconscionable acts of colonizers and the inequity in how they treat reparation for some groups, but not for other groups, you know? Mm. And so how they apologize to other groups. I, I think if I'm reading right here, I remember in 1998, for example, President Ronald Reagan signed legislation complete with reparation, and, um, extending a formal apology for Japanese American internment on American soil during World War uh, II. So, you know, so, so we have cases like these. We have the Jewish Holocaust. You know, our people have to stand up and say we're negotiating a, a package. This is what it will go for because our society, we can do an audit of our societies and say Dominica needs so many hospitals. Up in the Kalinago country, we need so, so, so. You know, we, we, we need, this is what it requires. And don't tell me about loans and grants and handouts. We're not asking for that. We're saying 
come to the table, negotiate, have a respectable package, and help come back to clean up this colonial mess. The University of the West Indies in 1940s established a medical school to clean up disease. But we have a different kind of disease legacy. And, and that's why UWI was so important with their band of historians to treat colonialism and its deformities as a disease and to address it through its, our scholarship. Ensure that we understand who our icons are. Satouillet. Not just these people we call abolitionists and put them up on hold as if they are that. And we in the Caribbean have a responsibility to take down those who are oppressors from our landscape. It's part of the decolonization process. We can't be jumping up and down and, and oh, black lives matter. Everywhere else but in our space, it's not okay. Not okay. Indeed. Indeed. I, I, I agree, I agree, um, um, Prof. Um, and and even, even to the point where part of the conversation within the Dominican space for a long time, coming out of the 70s with the whole Black Power movement and the movement for Caribbean at the time was, at the time my fathers and, and my uncles was, was speaking about the fact that we felt like a, like, a, like a third citizen in our own country. So there was a subtle kind of discrimination happening within. So while, while there was oppression from the colonizers, the people of African descent who, 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 um, who got the land at the end of it were also passing on a subtle kind of discrimination. And it's something we, we, are, we had to go out of and to, to educate people about because it's important. I mean, when we speak about, about reparations, we need to understand something very, very fundamental. We have to understand what was the nature of Europe at that time. Why did Europeans have to come out of, of that their particular species? Why did they go out? And when, when they went out there, what did they, what did they see? And what did they, what, how, how was that sort of extractive process benefiting their, that, that their particular species? They derived the development of banks and insurance companies and, and enterprises. All of this is something that, that it, it is something that I think is not speaking or spoken about enough because when 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 the European descendants speak about oh it's been 400 years it's been the past but they are beneficiaries right now as we speak mm -hmm. of that sort of injustice mm -hmm. and so so it is unfair to to even add in in the context of COVID to 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 expect Caribbean governments to to survive on, on by itself knowing okay. that we are only 40 years old at least 40 years old. And, and we're speaking about first, first world countries um, that, that have centuries of development structures that they created to benefit for themselves. So it's something that we have to look inward and something that has to be part. I'm so happy from that you, 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 you they're leading that, that chat at the curriculum level at the research center to get young intellectuals like myself to understand that it goes beyond just what we see. And, 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 and even if it may not happen in our lifetime, we should push in the very same way that my ancestors did not know that I would rise out of that situation to speak on modern, modern, modern 600 years after that, that, that first sort of discovery or, or sort of envision, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be part of this movement. It's something I think that the, the Caribbean citizen must be part of because I think it's unfair to expect it in our lifetime, but it is, it is good to be part of the process 
so that down the road our grandchildren uh, and people come after us can benefit from that, that sort of active activism and that sort of passion for, for what is justice for something that is that is the biggest crime against uh, against humanity and it's something that we, we need to speak out and we need to yeah. passion about. But I don't think you should give up so easily and say, man, in your lifetime, you're young. <laughs> Who thought that we would even be here? Who thought we'd be here in this way in 2020, talking so much everywhere about repatriate justice? That's the truth. The University of the Western is developing an MA in, in repatriate justice. We are collaborating with an MSc in repatriate justice. Oh, wow. develop, right? And also institutions that we never thought would budge. The Bank of England, the Green King pub chain, Lloyds of London that insured the ship, the slavers, like the Zong. That tragedy that we're going to start marking on the 29th of November because 132 live souls were thrown overboard deliberately. These acts, these acts to claim an insurance, you know, and it was insured, the Zong was insured by Lloyds of London. We're talking about universities like Harvard, Yale, um, Georgetown, Brown. They're all researching their past. Bristol. And my, the university at which I did my PhD, Cambridge, Jesus College, one of those oldest colleges, they have established a legacy working party to look into the legacy, the, their history of enslavement. Glasgow is doing it. London is doing it. No, according to Prof. Beckers, we hope they don't research and run. <laughs> we have to, we have to hold them responsible. You know, there was a man at Jesus College. He was a member of the Royal African Company. Branded people or ancestors, you know. And also, Dorbrin, if he were here, would have told you about the case that um, Antigua Barbuda is pushing against Harvard Law School because Isaac Royal, there is, that this is where research is important. We are digging up the evidence. Isaac Royal made his money in Antigua Barbuda, invested in Harvard Law School. So we have a case. So what I'm saying is that the, Lloyds and all the others are saying we need to enter into a repatriate justice conversation. So the state will not budge. But at least we are seeing some movement that we never thought we'd see in our lifetime. So, my brother, was strong. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, for sure, for sure. To, to hear, though, that the University of the West Indies is doing um, it, or considering a master's degree course in repository justice. Of course, a cynic, uh, a cynic might say that, that universities overseas are probably going to do the same thing uh, as well, charge all kinds of money to do those courses, collect more money uh, uh, out of this whole issue. They're probably doing it already. <laughs> and here we go again. <laughs> we have to, but you see, sometimes we have to just make sure that our people get the knowledge which will make them go after them. Of course. Well, so something that Professor, um, that you said, Professor, prompts me uh, to, to ask uh, the minister a question about, I mean, again, the minister is responsible for uh, Indigenous people's development as part of the, of the uh, Ten Point Action Plan. So, um, and I have to ask a tourism question. So, <laughs> yeah, you can't help yourself. <laughs> if I did not. But Professor Shepard, uh, sort of underlined the 
fascination. Uh, it, it goes beyond curiosity. The absolute reverence uh, that people uh, accord to indigenous populations. People want to see and touch and be with and understand more of. But there is that line between that curiosity mm. and objectification. Yeah. How can we, I mean, this is a tourism asset which is unique. So how can we really use this as an attraction? Uh, tourism is, after all, the engine that's driving our economies in the Caribbean to a large extent, and we have assets. How do we use these assets, uh, Minister, uh, without objectification? So, so on the island, we, we, we do have a, a, a model village that, that um, acts as a sort of heritage site that uh, details sort of the history of the people on the island. Um, what we all, what we are now moving into, is a more uh, immersive experience, because we are in, in contemporary times. We have to, we have to um, also have people appreciate how how we survive in the, in the modern period. Uh, so we are moving into what we call a community tourism project, that we that will encourage um, people not just going into a, a museum setting but to, to, to immerse themselves in the, in the community and to participate in the preparation of our food, um, to socialize, etc. So this is, this is the way we're moving because, because we, we, we rightly saw that people wanted to, to see aspects of us in, in sort of a, a glass case, but we, we are very much alive. Of course. And some of, some of, some of our, our, our behaviors have, 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 have changed over time. Um, so there's also the conversation uh, within the local sphere um, discussing how far do we take the heritage? How far do we, do we keep on the fundamental aspects of our heritage while being competitive in, in, in a sort of global environment? So, so we, 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 we suspect that the more immersive um, um, cultural um, development would be something that we, we would look cause a better appreciation for us as not a myth, but very much a life today. And so this is the new context in which we are operating. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, um, I've got to say, every time we have these panels, it's like, it feels like we need the entire day to deal with, <laughs> and, and maybe longer to deal with these issues. <laughs> Um, you know, but I think we did a pretty good job today of, of going through quite a bit. Um, I'll, I'll ask uh, the sort of um, final question. Um, oh, my gosh. Look, Dobreen has just arrived. <laughs> Dobreen, it's good to have you back. Um, how are you? I'm so embarrassed, man. It's okay. Internet just went out. I jumped in my vehicle. I drove to the office. Internet is out too, so I'm back home, and it's just come back up. All right, no problem. Well, now that you've joined us, we 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 were just about to conclude, but we're we're gonna have you. No, no, no. We, we're gonna we're gonna ask you a few questions, and and then we'll conclude, and then we will have uh, we'll have you back, so so that you can you know have an opportunity to speak on 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 some of the things that I know you are an expert in. So so let let's uh, one of the things that um. We, we touched upon um, that we know that you know quite a bit about is the, the public health um, impact 
um, of of slavery and and the fact that we are you know second to none in certain areas hypertension and diabetes etc. Um, give us a sense of of, of that impact um, and and how the ten point plan and how our goals are. Uh, what our goals are in order to address that in the context of that plan? Well, well, certainly. Um, we're talking uh, about an epidemic of non-communicable diseases in the Caribbean. Um, in the African populations, we are looking at um, prevalence rates of 9%, 10% of the population with, uh, with diabetes at least. It's estimated that 60% of our population over 60 years of age would have either diabetes or hypertension or both. It is, it is, it is that serious. Now, the, when we look at the prevalence rates, for example, in African populations on the continent, we are seeing rates of approximately 3.54% of General, I, I, I'm using the term African in, in African population in, in, in a very wide sense. Um, but let's say at least West African population, we're looking at rates at about four, uh, four, three to four percent of population. So it's very, very clear that something has happened to the African population here in the Caribbean. Those rates for diabetes, um, hypertension are found perhaps only in one other place um, in the West in Mississippi, in the United States, and clearly perhaps resulting from the, the same experience. Uh, the, the whole study of the, the new emerging study of epi, epigenetics is pointing clearly to the transmission of trauma from one generation to the other generation. That trauma itself will have impact on genetic structures and genetic structure we know is communicated from one generation to the other generation. And the subsequent generation generally has very negative responses again to trauma and again to stress. And these negative reactions we, we are experiencing in the present generation, we are very clear, are, are pointing, of course, to the transmission of the trauma of enslavement, the trauma of colonialism to present generations of Caribbean people. And so, so long as we're able to make that connection, that connection between the crime against humanity, um, essentially, which, which, which is what we're saying that slavery was, the enslavement of African people was, and the resulting um, impact, which is no within this Caribbean, the prevalence of, of NCDs, non-communicable diseases, we are saying firmly that this is subject to reparatory justice. Now, how does this happen? Um, most of the literature that we find around diabetes and hypertension, I mean, I'm talking top-level literature, the PAHO, WHO literature, etc., will point a lot to all the causes um, for health, health disparities between populations. But not too much of the literature points to the efficacy 
of the treatment of these diseases. You know, we know, yes, we must deal with diets, we must deal with um, physical activity, you know. We, we, we have a very clear view of all the contributions to good health. But we are at a stage where we are talking about treatment. Now, all scientists are pointing to the fact that the existing drugs that we are using for these diseases, that they are not, they have low, or well, let's say about 60, 70% efficacy on the African genetic structure, where, you know, they, they tested on Europeans and they are 90, 95% effective there, um, and they are about 60, 70% effective here. Now, the idea is that small tweaks in the molecular structure of some of these drugs could make them more efficient on African, African genetic structure. But it is the cost of doing that for small populations. Why the commercial companies, obviously the, the, the big corporations are not interested in spending a billion dollars, two billion dollars to tweak a drug for five, 10 million of us. Mm. And this is where reparations become important. Right. That it is through reparations that we can gather that amount of funds that could help us to make those adjustments and save thousands of lives in this Caribbean annually. And not only in the Caribbean, but in Caribbean populations elsewhere in the diaspora. Indeed, indeed. Um, um, Mr. Riley, would you like to follow up on that? I have one more question for Dorbreen, but you, you may have a question for him as well. Well, I wanted to make sure, uh, Torbrain, and you missed this when we were talking earlier with, uh, with your colleagues on the panel, that, 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 that this is really reaching the right ears and eyes and that the people of the Caribbean have a clear understanding of the kinds of things that you have just said. Because I am guaranteeing you that, that most people um, either are somehow still outside of the bounds of this discussion um, or they have some casual uh, knowledge of it but really haven't had the benefit of the kind of passion and the facts that, that you have just shared with us and that your colleagues on the panel have so generously shared with us today. How is that resonating? Who are you saying this to? Who's hearing and who's responding? I, um, here in Antigua, I think we, we are experiencing a fairly decent response. I would say a year or two ago, the concept of um, genetic transfer of trauma caused a lot of consternation, especially among the physical fitness um, and the health experts themselves who said, no, 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 that is making up stories, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that over the years, and as a lot more evidence becomes available to us through our conferences, um, through our exchanges and programs like this, I think we are feeling clearly a wider acceptance, well, certainly a wide acceptance of the concept of reparations. But then when we get to, you know, we, 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 we get to the, the nuts and bolts of it as we are dealing with on, on this program, it's still going to take a little more time and a little more exposure um, for, for, for the wider population. I think we have a fairly decent acceptance here. Um, with some of the caveats, you know, hope the money don't go to the politicians. You're sure you're going to get that, et cetera, et cetera. But fairly decent. Thank you. Right. Right. Um, 
Right. Uh, and that, that's good to hear. I mean, there, and there's a, a ton of work to be done. You, I don't think you were on the, the line um, when we said that uh, the network is definitely going to be here with you guys to disseminate that information. We are, we are your partner in respiratory justice. Um, and uh, so um, there was, I think it was Professor Shepard who pointed out, and, and um, this will be our penultimate question. I have one last question, but this will be the penultimate. Um, uh, Professor Shepard pointed out that if you were on the, li the live at the time, you would talk about a particular case that, that, uh, um, that Antigua has um, with regards to um, Harvard Law School. Um, yes. Can you give us a, a little bit of background on that, just to to uh, to let our viewers know what that case is about? Yeah, well, uh, um, briefly, the founder of Harvard Law School, essentially, is, is the son of a, a, a slave owner, an enslaver here in Antigua. Um, and just after the 1736 um, Prince class we hold share in Antigua, he packed up, um, obviously sold out property, etc., um, including his property of enslaved persons, and it is from those funds, he then returned to, to Massachusetts, and it is from those funds that he bequeathed the monies to start the Harvard Law School. So what, what we're really saying, and what the Antigua government has said from the, the prime minister ambassador level has said, is that that establishment of that school is from the proceeds of enslavement here in Antigua. And therefore, we want to talk reparations with you. There was an initial resistance from, 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 from Harvard itself. But subsequently, within the last couple of months, they have now agreed at least to have the conversation. And so um, that is in, is in process right now. It's being handled outside of the, the, the level of the Reparations Commission itself right now. It's being handled at ambassadorial and at prime minister level. I see. Well, very interesting. You know, as a lawyer myself, uh, you know, I always find um, these, these issues that tie up with, with, uh, with legal issues are, are important for us to understand because at the end of the day, uh, to get what is absolutely owed, it may come down to a legal case that will have to be made. Um, and uh, so this is very interesting, particularly with... Um, with Harvard Law School. I mean, yeah, there's professors yeah. like Charles Ogletree and, and several others that, you know, that, that talked about, um, is, is Cornell? No, Cornell West was not there. He said, uh, mm -hmm. right, right. But, well, well I, I, I thank you for sharing that with us. And, and like I said, that um, we'll have you back, Doreen, um, because, uh, in, right, in order for you to share some more of your views. Um, I said, my question to you is the penultimate one. Here is, here's the ultimate one. Um, I was having just before this, uh, this live, um, well, it was maybe two, two days ago, I was, I was telling a minister um, here in the country that, that I'm in, uh, saying that we're having a live on reparations. And I mentioned that we had part one, et cetera. And um, the response immediately was quite shocking. Um, immediately before I was even able to, to say what I was saying about the life, it was, a, oh, this is not, that's not going to happen. That's a, that's, that's a waste of time. And this, this was, um, this was um, you know, 
at, at such a high level that I thought that it was, um, again, it was shocking. So um, how do you, how, how do we, how do we get it into the psyche of our people at all different levels that this is possible, not just in, in, in you know, uh, Minister Frederick's young lifetime, um, uh, in, in, in that it is actually possible and, and that in order for something to happen, we have to make the demand. It may not happen right away, but how do we, how do we, how do we get that into the psyche of our people? Professor Shepard. Oh, I thought you were looking forward to Dobrin's answer. Oh, uh, no, no. This is the <laughs> ultimate question. Everybody's going to have a do at this okay, one. Yes, yes. We'll close. Yes. Well, you know, I think when our ancestors were fighting for emancipation, um, all those centuries of war, of resistance, I don't think they dreamt that emancipation would have become a reality. But they kept on, and they kept on, and every generation launched a bid for freedom. Mm. That's what we have to do. Those of us who are in the reparation movement, those of us who are leaders, administrators, people in the media, those of us who are educators, we just have to keep on doing what we are doing because... um, those who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Indeed. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. I don't know how you're going to top that, Minister Frederick. Let's go. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, 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 think, I think we owe it. We as this present generation, this, this modern digital generation, we to our ancestors who, who, who shed blood uh, and tears um, to do our bit to ensure that those we will be behind um, benefit from a, a much, a much um, better way of life, knowing that historical wrongs happen, and we clear our path to ensure that we, we have that correction. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, that was pretty good. That was pretty good, Minister Frederick. <laughs> I'm Dorbrin. Are you coming to me now? <laughs> Listen, I think we we need to to win all small battles in in the whole war, and I think over the last the last decade or so, we have seen some of these small battles being won. Um, we have seen the universities, the academia in particular, across the United States and in Europe, beginning to own up to their relationship to the enslavement of African people. And we are getting these small, small advances. Some have actually established um, reparations programs. I mean, we, we, we have had instances where our chairperson, um, Sir Hillary, so Hillary has reached into the British Parliament to have these discussions. He has reached onto the Senate or the Senate floor or in the Senate periphery in the United States to have these discussions. We have seen the issue of reparations appearing in the Democratic um, presidential, the U.S. presidential campaign among the Democrats, where the discussion is now rare and the issue is back on the, on, on the forefront. And I think that it's these little victories 
one by one, one by one, as we continue, as, as I think as, as my colleague said, as we continue um, dealing with our historical responsibility as descendants of African enslaved people here in this region, that is our responsibility. We will continue to address that responsibility. And these little changes, these little changes in the armor, these little responses, the new committees being formed in Europe, new reparations commission being formed in Switzerland, for example, the continued work of other reparations commission, the, 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 the engagement now with African countries, that back in 2001 were, were, were very scared of addressing this topic of reparations. I mean, they, they stayed away from it. As a matter of fact, some even voted against it. And now we have seen them also coming around. And I think we just need to, to, to keep, you know, dealing with our responsibility and showing the naysayers that things are happening. Showing them that virtually every other group that has been wronged has received reparations, and ask the question, why not African people? Mm -hmm. I, I think that has to be our approach, and essentially is the approach that, that I think we are finding within the Commission. Awesome, awesome, excellent, excellent. Um, well, this has been amazing. Um, uh, Mr. Riley, would you have any final uh, thoughts that you wish to convey? Well, just to emphasize what our panelists have all said in different ways. I mean, we're all from cricket playing nations, so I can use a cricket analogy. I mean, singles matter too when in, in winning a match. You know, it's not just about boundaries. So all these little victories. But I also want to say though that uh, don't don't discount the, the the importance of the naysayers. You know, they sometimes propel us to greater heights. You know, they 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 make us prove uh, that we can do the impossible. The impossible just takes a little longer. Indeed, indeed, and uh, nothing is impossible. What is, what is, uh, somebody help me, because that just uh, brought to my mind a quote from Nelson Mandela, that you thought that it was impossible until you did it. It always seems impossible until it happens. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Right. So, so we will... We will hold on to that. Um, and um, I want to thank everyone um, for the time this afternoon. Time well spent, I believe. Um, we had some technical difficulties, but we got through those power outage in, in Antigua and all kinds of different things. <laughs> but, but we managed. Um, and that's what we do as, as, as our people have managed uh, through these difficulties over these hundreds of years. Uh, and so we will continue to do that. So thank you very much, everyone. Um, uh, to our Temple family, we thank you for always being with us um, and um, know that this is a topic that we're going to be bringing to you on a very consistent basis um, until we actually get the job done. Um, so we will be, we will be moving along uh, in, that, uh, in that course. Uh, so thank you once again. Uh, this is The Road Ahead. My name is Frederick Morton. I am the CEO and Chairman of Temple Networks, and it has been a privilege to present uh, the case for Caribbean reparations here on the road ahead. See you next time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah,